Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole presents a space pod of tea. Uh, in tonight's episode, we are going to be talking about David Bowie's eighth studio album, Diamond Dogs, released in 1974. This is your host and one of your creators, Mark Branstead. And with me, as always, I have Stephen Earle. Oh, I'm sorry. I was, uh, I, was chase- I was chasing peeploids around uh, Hunger City. Hello. Hello, Stephen. Good to hear you. And then, uh, gentleman, a scholar, a road warrior himself, Eric Monroe, what do you got to say for yourself? Oh, uh, nothing. Just, you know, I found this old top hat in a dumpster a little while back that I've dusted off, had it with me for about six months now, had to fight a couple of human dogs off with it, but uh, looking pretty good for uh, Hunger City fashion as far as it goes. Awesome. I am rocking my eye patch, so we're ready for battle. All right. So how the hell are you guys doing? We talked about dystopias last uh, last week. Uh, you feeling good? You feeling positive? Are you feeling uh, happy? Well, today today was Father's Day, so you know that's at least the day was supposed to be about the three of us in our households. That's right. Finally, a day for the men. Finally. <laughs> I know. I mean, <laughs> can we just get one day? I mean, I feel assaulted, threatened. I I just it's not. You know, where's where's something for us, right? Men's rights. Exactly. Um, with us as always we've got Gavin McGinnis and his proud boys <laughs> holding on line one uh, that, that uh, does remind me that today I read a news, a news a news clip that Alex Jones is offering one million dollars for the hacker that put child porn on his computer network ooh he's putting a bounty <laughs> uh, save those for legal fees buddy yeah. did you guys do anything for Father's Day today I did not. I'm preparing to go on a trip for the week, uh, taking a little vacation with the family. Um, so it's just preparation for my week long sabbatical. How about you guys? I woke up I and to- uh, was surprised with a Blu-ray copy of The Crow for my children. That was very nice of them. And then uh, went to lunch. It was a Crow three, brewery. but close enough. Yeah, that's right. I went to uh, lunch at a brewery. Yeah, and then I uh, went over to my in-laws house and swam for baked in the sun for three hours. And uh, yeah, that was my day. Jesus Christ. That sounds exhausting. Um, I, I did spend time with my father-in-law yesterday at Lake Berryessa, which was all right. Down there in winters, California, which Eric always speaks highly of. That's near Davis, right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's past yeah. Davis. Yeah. Yeah, then, then today I woke up, got breakfast with my parents, uh, fought bamboo in my backyard for a while. And... <laughs> you should see the other guy, am I right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then uh, here we are. So I was, I was trying to, I really wanted to dig into my rewatch of Breaking Bad because why, why watch new things when I can just rewatch the same TV shows all the time? But uh, I didn't get to really sit in the couch all day like I planned to, yeah. which is a tragedy. There's something in the zeitgeist because I was scrolling through Twitter uh, this morning and either the algorithm is listening in on our text messages. Uh, yesterday in the writer's room, me and Steven were texting about history's greatest hour long drama. And uh, it was the combination of me going with Sopranos. Um, the New York Times ran an article today 
20 best uh, hour-long dramas since The Sopranos with a picture of good old uh, uh, Walter White wearing his underwear in the desert. Nope. Something's in the air. Yep. They're... Uh... Everybody, everybody misses Jesse Pinkman just a little bit. Yeah, I, I understand it. Seems those those innocent days where just a couple of guys trying to cook some meth seems so much more wholesome than the daily news we see all the time now. <laughs> He's going to be on uh, the next season of Westworld. I'm excited about that. Yeah, there's supposed great. to be a Jesse Pinkman uh, uh, AMC movie, fall, uh, like an epilogue to Breaking Bad. We'll see if that ever happens. Yeah, but no, uh, I did. I did when you did bring up the see all you got to do is bring up the Sopranos and I, I I will fall down a YouTube rabbit hole like you wouldn't believe looking at and uh, God I don't even know I don't know where it began or ended but I do know that LP was the one talking about the episode the uh, the intervention with Christopher <laughs> yeah <laughs> that <laughs> disgusting <laughs> oh man like uh, little Stevie is just a uh, great every every performance in that show is just on point. Speaking of friend of the show, LP, he did announce today on Twitter that he's this close to re-releasing all his original uh, solo albums, which are long out of print. And those are masterpieces, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. Would love it if his uh, unused uh, Blade Runner work got released as well, because he, the, the, he did a score that didn't get picked up for the new Blade Runner movie. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, and I've heard one song off of it, and it's a, it's it's great. The song I heard is great. It's just not as like, um, it's not as like, uh, you know, it did it definitely what they used in the in twenty forty nine fit very very well. But what he did was was cool and made total sense. What he did was closer to the original movie. The yeah. what I think they ended up with in twenty forty nine was like Coney Yaskotsky by way of twenty forty nine. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Speaking of new things as well, uh, I have to mention whenever Bruce Springsteen releases something new, that he put out a new album this weekend, and it is wonderful. It's a, uh, it's not the E Street Band. It's just Bruce by himself and other players, and the he's going for a a cinematic, lush soundscape where it, 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 there's a lot of string sections. And there's just a lot of rising action, and it I, rocks. Yes, it's it 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 it, it 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 if it doesn't rock, at least it's going somewhere. Um, I've heard it's I, very similar to like Nebraska era Bruce Springsteen. Would you agree with that? Well, I wouldn't I call that with, lush. I wouldn't call that era no. lush, but maybe in songwriting. Yes, lyrically, yes. Lyrically, yes, but musically, yes, but maybe closer to like what he did on Magic, or maybe not the Magic, but the one that had Outlaw Pete on it. No, not not even that. Uh, more than that, I, 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 I think that it, it's like something I've never heard him do. It's almost like if they were to, if he were to walk, if he were to time, travel back through time, go into Frank Sinatra's studio, kick Frank Sinatra out. Not record songs like Frank Sinatra would ever record, but use his entire uh, 49-piece orchestra. That's what this sounds like. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I see. That oh. analogy was quite the journey. I like it. <laughs> that's good. Oh, well, we'll talk really, a little bit more about, about the boss later, correct? Yeah, we will. Anyhow, that's what a, that, that was a nice Father's Day gift to myself. Uh, so, the, uh, a new album. I got a new release for you. This is my uh, industrial corner over here. 
there's a band called uh, Agent Sidegrinder, and they're not really industrial. They're more like dark wave, but they do have some crossover. And they have a new album uh, just called X. If you look up the, the uh, song Strip Down, and there's a video for it, there's a music video for it, you'll see the magic of Agent Sidegrinder. They're, they're so good, so much fun, and there is some fantastic saxophone going on. So uh, yes. uh, that, that new album from start to finish kills me. It's great. Yes, you knowing that I'm a saxophone fan, uh, you sent that song to me, and I do, I do approve. It's a goodie. Um, oh yeah, and then uh, friends of the show, Three Teeth and, and Ministry have been hanging out on tour over in Europe. Um, and apparently, uh, Al Jorgensen gave uh, uh, Lex, the, the singer from Three Teeth, uh, something uh, from his uh, well water to drink because their new video has a presidential candidate candidate that turns into a lizard man, and um, it's ridiculous. But the new Three Teeth album, Meta War, is going to be great. So. They're they're an industrial band I fully get behind, so there you go. I'm amused by I'm amused by that 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 lead singer. He reminds me of Les Claypool crossed with Al Jorgensen. Crossed with the uh, with our friend from um, from uh, Rammstein. Yeah. So that's enough about what came out now and what's happening now. What happened in the year of 1974? Oh, yeah. Well, cue the... And let's go back. Let's go back. (laughs) We're going to hear a little bit of that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. 1974. (laughs) So, oh, I didn't even make the connection. This is 10 years before. Yeah, shit. That's funny. All right. Um... So here we go. 1974. Average cost of a new house was $35,000. Average income per year, $14,000. Average monthly rent, $185. Oh, boy. Those were the days. Am I right? That's right. There were all sorts of, uh, like, um, recessions going on, Um, you know, be it the economy in America, they implemented the 55 mile per hour speed limit to cut down on gas usage. Sammy so, Hagar wasn't happy. No, no, he wasn't. It inspired a. He wrote, <laughs> history's greatest protest song was written because of this. <laughs> <laughs> Which was perfectly used in Back to the Future Part Two. <laughs> uh, big news. Um, big news. Richard Nixon. The uh, becomes the first U.S. president forced to resign uh, because of the Watergate, Watergate scandal. Um, you know, uh, Bowie was a an American at this point, and he uh, doesn't directly reference it, but you can imagine his uh, focus on dystopia uh, probably came from the tumultuous uh, American uh, prospects at this time. Some other news, um, some things I didn't even know about was uh, the... Kootenai Native American tribe in Idaho declares war on the United States, but it was a peaceful war. They just forced people that were driving on a major highway through their reservation to pay a toll. That was how they declared war. And 
it, get, it garnered a lot of attention. Yeah, it got, it got a lot of attention for their their plight. So good for them. I mean, after that, the United States was never heard from again. So they must have done something right, right? <laughs> We're we are all Kootenay. That's right. Uh, oh, uh, friend of the show, Nick Rusis, uh, Brisbane, uh, where he hails from in Australia. He's one of our our, our favorite listeners. Uh, there was huge floods this year uh, that that caused more than 8,500 homes to be destroyed, people to be relocated. Sounds like Brisbane had a hell of a year. Um, first woman president was elected in Argentina. Yay for Isabel Perón, 1974. We got popular films, The Sting. Great film. The Sting. Oh, yeah. You got, Is that uh, on your list? It's not on the AFI list, but that's a classic Newman and uh, Redford movie, though. You know, people are going to start thinking they're seeing cats in the Matrix because we actually talked about that in another episode. We did. (laughs) That's right. Um, You got The Exorcist this year, which is a William Freakin uh, classic, of course. One I've never seen, Papillion. Um, have you seen that one? Yeah, uh, that's with uh, Steve McQueen, I think, right? And Dustin Hoffman? I think it is. Sounds right. And I think, I think I've seen it. Papillon. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, Papillon. I think, yeah. There you go. One for the kids, Herbie Rides Again. <laughs> I've never seen any of the Love Bug movies, ever. And you call yourself a Disney fanatic. It's crazy. <laughs> like the live action stuff, like I haven't, uh, like the live action classic stuff, I've only seen Mary Poppins like once. But yeah, the, the Love Bug movies, um, <laughs> I don't know if the Apple Dumpling game, uh, Gang is uh, a Disney movie. I want to say that it is. But yeah, those it movies is. I've it never fucking is. seen. It is. I was going to say, <laughs> I feel like this is the one where Herbie chases the Apple Dumpling Gang around. But uh, is Don Knotts in this wrong. one? <laughs> I, I, I or those are just Herbie's headlights or his eyes. I can't tell. But <laughs> what about a no bed knobs and broomsticks? I yeah, I swear, not even that one. Uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I don't know if that's a Disney one, but it, I no, feel it like is. it is. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, uh, I, we, we got uh, Blazing Saddles. Great fucking film. That's right. That might be one of my favorite Mel Brooks movies. Uh, Richard Pryor was supposed to be the Cleavon Little character, um, but he didn't. I know that Richard Pryor helped write some of the stuff in there. Yeah. Great fucking movie. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic movie. That's right. Hot take. Uh, Hot take. Death Wish. That's that's not a good movie. That is not a good. Starring film. Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is in it as a uh, as a. Uh, as a rapist. Yeah. There's no, there's no way to sugarcoat that. Um, yeah. That's not a good movie at all. It's uh, I I'm all for the, are you, are you pro or con Charles Bronson? I mean, most I of his movies pro- aren't like, aren't they that? <laughs> yeah. They're terrible. I'm pro Charles Bronson in theory, but he's like not a good actor. I kind of like him in other stuff like the great escape or, um, the Great Escape, <laughs> or uh, Once Upon a Time um, in the West. Once Upon a Time in the West, yeah. Yeah, Harmonica Man. Um, but yeah, Death Wish is like, it's just like scared. It, the, the movie feels like scared of the lower class half the time. It's 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 problematic. It's got some racial, it's problematic for racial things, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Godfather, part I, two. I think, I think that Charles Bronson 
we're probably giving him short shrift here. I don't know. Is a I'm not going to go to his IMDb page, but I think he's got some chops. Yeah, he's not Chuck Norris. I mean, like my yeah, God, exactly. Chuck <laughs> Norris is. <laughs> he's made a career of just one doing one thing. So yeah, right. Yeah, I think yeah, he's a little wider than that. So we got Godfather the Two God, and the Godfather. Yeah, the Godfather Part Two. Excellent film. Another hot take. I mean, it might be like it, it ranks really high, I think, in the AFI list, but uh, it, it should be right up there. I don't know which one I like better, one or two. Uh, one, I feel like I can just watch that like on repeat over and over. Two is something that you have to digest like a little bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of part two. In fact, anybody that thinks part one's better than part two is a fucking idiot as far as I'm concerned. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, they're equal. They're equal. I, I think they're equal films. Uh, I love seeing young Vito do his thing. Um, but uh, one is just like, just a pure shot of adrenaline. It's, no, it's very great. good. I, mean, I, was, I, I was just playing. I was playing. I was yeah. playing. They're, they're both great. Let's great films. We, can, we can sit here all day debating uh, Godfather 2 versus 1. A lot of people would say it's 2. But what I can tell you, unequivocally, Casino is better than Goodfellas. Unequivocally, yes. Um, I mean, we all agree that Curly's Gold is better than the original City Slickers, so we can just move on. Sometimes the sequel is better than the original. I understand. Yeah, well, the original didn't have uh, John Lovitz in it, so yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Uh, Popular TV shows, Kung Fu, The Waltons. Kojak, still. Uh, and the $6 million man. And then uh, some other popular musicians uh, at this time. 1974, you got ABBA. You got Eric Clapton with his big hit of the year, I Shot the Sheriff. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, you know, I'm not an Eric Clapton guy. I'm just not. No. I mean, it's like, I, I've been told, like, oh, man, Derek and the Domino's Cream, you got to just, you know, listen to those licks, man, old slow hand. And um, I just, okay, I guess he just does nothing for me. He's a good guitar player, but first of all, A, he's a garbage person, um, you know, just looking. But he can change the world. Dead. Yeah, but he uh, he's a good guitar player. But, yeah, I mean, just listen to how he chooses to record his music. I mean, none of it really feels like it's got much heart to it. So, um, I mean, sorry, tears from heaven. I mean, clearly I do I know. feel bad for him as far as that goes, but, uh, so Genesis, you hate me all there. yeah, Genesis broke through the, uh, the, uh, the pop culture this year. Um, always kind of enjoy Genesis. I don't care. I don't care if, if it's even the Phil Collins era. I have no problems with Phil Collins. I have no problems with Peter Gabriel. Um, and I have a huge blind spot on hearing the stuff with Peter Gabriel in Genesis. It's uh, something I've just never exposed myself to. It's like basically invisible touch onward. And uh, yeah, but I'm a big yeah. fan of Peter Gabriel and solo work. Right. Well, I'm sure we've discussed it on the show before, but it bears repeating the land of confusion video is a masterpiece. It is. And that's post invisible touch. You know, I'm pretty yeah. sure on that. Yeah. That's post invisible touch. Pre, I can't dance. Yeah. 
Sweet spot. They use puppets. <laughs> Nancy. <laughs> So this was a big year for music. So I'm just going to rapid fire through the rest of these here. Deep Purple, Alice Cooper. Uh, we had um big year for Van Morrison, Dolly Parton, Queen, Roxy Music, Super Tramp. Super Tramp is great. Breakfast in America, Wake Up Heather, and she'll agree with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. When, I at, when I was out at Lake Berryessa yesterday, Super Tramp came on the Eagle and I... Uh, I mentioned I like Super Tramp. That's like there you go. There it is. You know, I I like what I've heard of Roxy Music. Um and the family is yeah. gonna go see Brian Ferry in concert in August, and he's gonna do the album, the Roxy Music album Avalon from start to finish. So which one of good. the album covers is that that has the topless ladies on it? Is it when they're because I I feel they have a several album covers that have topless ladies. They definitely have the one with the two girls in the grass. I think Avalon is the one with the Falcon with Mordecai with yeah. the helmet. I think that's that's yeah. Avalon. Okay. That's the one that's the one that my stepmother owned. But yeah, so. it, that's that there you go. That's nineteen seventy four. It's the world of politics, music. What's Bowie doing? It doesn't matter what he's doing because we haven't talked about what's important. Sports. Ah yes. <laughs> the crack of the bat. The smell of the grass. Super Bowl eight. The Miami Dolphins beat the Minnesota Vikings. Oh, good old. I guess that would have been a uh, the uh, who's the guy with the hair? Joe Namath. Joe Namath. Jolton. Uh, yeah, that's Jolton. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. it's Broadway but Joe. He, I think. I think that was his fucking. He was name. no Johnny Unitas. <laughs> that's a right. Haircut, haircut. You can set your watch to <laughs> the NBA Finals. The Boston Celtics beat the Milwaukee Bucks, but that's not as what is important is what happened this week when the Golden State Warriors did not win the finals and the Toronto Raptors, our new overlords, beat them. That's right. Thank you. We need to make basketball great again. We need to have an American team win the National Basketball Association Championship. But I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that Toronto won the won won the thing. Yeah, you know, it's the, the the Golden State Warriors offset the balance for so long of the NBA that the Canadians had to come down here and set things straight. And you know what? Maybe we're gonna maybe we need to have a Red Dawn situation with Canada to get this country set straight again. That's true. The uh, the Stanley Cup. The Philadelphia Flyers beat the Boston Bruins. Congratulations to the St. Louis Blues who won the Stanley Cup this week. But all of that is just preamble to what was really important in 1974. Here we go. When the Los Angeles Dodgers were beaten by the Oakland Athletics to win the World Series. Ah, the Oakland Athletics dynasty of the 70s. Yes. The greatest baseball team of all time, I will hear nothing about it. I will hear no dissension. Did they win in 73, 74, and 75? I know they did like a three-run dynasty thing, right? I want to say it's 72, 73, 74. Johnny A's fan over here should know that off the top of his head. But I do know it was three years in a row, and 74 was one of them. Yep. Fantastic. Absolutely. You won't, you won't get any dissent from me. Yeah, <laughs> 
Actually, one of, the, one, of the, one of the A's games you took me to had like this uh, crew of the 70s players that showed up and it was like, uh, it was like, a, I don't know, anniversary. I don't know if it was, what it was, but it was definitely a celebration of that, of that era. Well, yeah, that's what baseball teams always do is that, uh, especially ones that don't have any recent huge successes, they always got to roll out the old guys again. Oh, man. Like, oh, it's, a, it's the 17th anniversary of the last time they went to the uh, the second round of the playoffs. You know, so they really start coming up with some ridiculous milestones. Oh, yeah. San Francisco made a career out of doing that until 2010. So I understand. Yep. Well, the way things are going over there, they're going to start doing it again pretty soon here. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> My uh, my stepdad was telling me how happy he is that they have Stephen Vote, and I was like, "That's that's uh says everything about that's uh, that's yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what you're celebrating right now." Sports. Oh yeah. Well, anyhow, all right, 1974, the year of the Diamond Dogs. Eric, what was our hero doing right now? What well, are we going to talk about? Our parents. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, my parents were, you know, living, <laughs> uh, living in Lincoln, California. That was my parents. They were teenagers and yours. Yeah. I, I, I know my dad was doing, I was talking about, I think he was doing what I talked about last time, just his like whole like seventies LA thing. Um, yeah, you know, actually now that I think about it, I listened to that last episode. Your dad was kind of, he was kind of a dirt bag during these years, wasn't he? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> Dirtbag. I mean, he was. I mean, he, he was. was he, lied his way, he lied his way into a hang gliding teaching gig, and uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. But he was definitely like a rock and roll LA guy. Um, my mom always tells a story. This was right around the time they met each other, and um, they had met each other in like a dark bar one time, and they set up like a date. So she came over to his house, and she's going to see him in the daylight for the first time. And his roommate was apparently this like super long hair, like super rock and roll like LA type and my mom got super excited thought that was my dad and then like my dad like walked out in like platform shoes or whatever and and it was just him <laughs> and, <laughs> and his roommate was the was the long-haired uh, uh hunk but um she thought anyways. she was going to get Robert, she thought she was going to get Robert Plant instead she got Jack Gallagher <laughs> <laughs> what about you Mark so what did I my parents, uh, I think my dad just graduated high school year prior in Pittsburgh, California, Bay Area, East Bay. And my mom was uh, probably on her way to the West Coast from the Great Plains of Nebraska. They both were about to join the Navy in the Navy. Um, oh, going California way. Exactly. Uh, they were both in uh, living and about to be stationed in Oakland Naval Base as in the medical ward and uh fireworks were about to fly and that's so, pretty much what my parents were up to in 1974 didn't am i getting my stories mixed up didn't like didn't your father see a man get shot at his school he didn't see it uh he he went up to uh, to school one day he grew up in a rough neighborhood uh the bay area was not was not uh was not good there was definitely a lot of race riots during that time uh, because obviously, uh, racial tensions were high was, and everything's gotten better in the Bay area since oh, I'm sure that it has. I'm sure it's utopia. Um, but, uh, he goes up to school and, uh, 
one of his friends drug deal gone bad, but yeah, they, they shot him and it was on school grounds and in order to scatter the bullets so they wouldn't find, uh, they couldn't trace it back to whatever gun it was. Uh, they apparently the, the assailants put a shotgun up the, the person's rear end and pulled the trigger and he was splattered all over the school grounds. And uh, these are the stories my dad shared with me when I was 12 years old. <laughs> I got to tell all the time, Mark. <laughs> so there it is. Yeah. Uh, the freewheeling Bay Area and uh, parenting skills 101 from <laughs> Scott Branstead. Hey, man, he was the top salesman of like 1995 and 96. I mean, so if whatever. you come over, he'll show you that video where he sings my way. He's got it on standby. All these, all these plaques up in your, in your parents' office, and they all, they just all look the same to me. Well, it's I like, mean, it's the same award. I mean, uh, for listeners out there, and this is not a uh, counseling therapy session; those usually meet on uh, Thursday evenings for me. Um, but uh, I don't. I haven't spoken with my dad for two and a half, three. Let's let's just round it up to four years now. So uh, he's still out there somewhere, um, but uh, I've decided our paths don't cross. So on this Father's Day, I uh, don't have anything that I had to do from an obligation standpoint. Just my kids had to make me some arts and crafts from their preschool, and I had to pretend to enjoy those. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my kid! My kid made me a a card that had his footprint on it. It was green, and it said, "Dad, Yoda best, like Yoda." Oh, Yoda I got best. it. Yeah, I mean it? that's comedy gold right there. It's a classic bit. I bet you wish you got that card. <laughs> my my daughter made me three cards, and Lennox made me a. I just got an envelope from him that said, "Happy Father's Day, Dad. I love you." And then on the envelope, and I opened it up, and there was a thank you card that I bought for. <laughs> With nothing written inside. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, that's all. That's just uh, that's that's smart. You know, he's saving money. Right. That's right. Yeah. It's all. Right. It's called. That's what we call four-dimensional chess, Eric. Okay. All right, Your kids. Yeah. He's nine steps ahead of you. Yeah, it's true. All right. All right. 1974. So that, David Bowie. So that, that uh, we're going to talk more about the cracked actor movie towards the end when we talk about the live albums. But he definitely was starting to head his, 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 he was starting to head towards the in frail minded, emotionally fragile area of what you see of him in that cracked actor documentary when he was making this album and what culminated, I think in station to station, which we discussed last time. Right. As far as his mindset goes, he's definitely, this was he just they just busted the spiders from Mars up and he basically does this. The, you know, he teaches himself how to play guitar in this album because he doesn't even have a, a, a guitar side sidekick. Yeah. And he, I feel uh, that he uh, retired Ziggy Stardust in the year before in 1973. Yeah, very, very publicly retired him. And th- this album it, it in the way the lyrics are written. And the way it sounds, it definitely, much like Station to Station, seemed to be like in between the Philly soul going towards low. I feel that Diamond Dogs very much was 
leading the glam, leaving the glam stuff and going towards the Philly soul stuff. But uh, what more can you tell us about the recording of this record, Eric? Who was on this record? So, um, well, first of all, we got we got our boy Tony Visconti is uh, back helping record the album um, and uh, co-produced it and was on there doing um, some of the arrangements. We also yeah, had... I don't know if he co-produced it. I think he was just marked as just strings and mixing, but I do think David Bowie was just oh, the sole credited no. producer. Thank you. Yeah, You're right. They, they right. Were, I'm sure that he helped produce it, but yeah, he, Visconti was the mixer and uh, the arranger. And um, yeah, the, the guys on this album is you had a... I'll just... I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. So yeah, David Bowie, you know, singing the, the, all over the place, leading background vocals. And... He plays guitar, saxophones, the Moog, and the Mellotron on this one. Right. And it really, it's a one-man show. Well, I, I got to say and, about the guitar, it should be should be noted that Mick Ronson wrote a lot of the guitar arrangements for this album, but didn't perform them. So he did write a lot of them for Bowie to play. Just, just Okay, and that makes sense because a lot of these songs started uh, while they were, you know, re- getting written on the road for the Ziggy, Start- the Ziggy Stardust cycles. Right. So that makes sense, especially with Rebel Rebel. I would not be surprised if he came up with that riff. Yeah. And so that, uh, that one's for sure a Ronson riff. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alan, Par- Alan Parker also helped on guitar, who I do not think is the same Alan Parker that made the wall. And uh, Ansley Dunbar on drums, Tony Newman on drums, Herbie Flowers on the bass guitar. Oh, yeah. He's back show- from uh, Space Oddity. Yes. He, he played bass on and that then- one. And then a friend of the show, Mike Garson, uh, on keyboards, which ties this album directly to our Nine Inch Nails discussions, as he was on The Fragile, among other things. Right. And Mike Garson, was he on Station to Station? No. No. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 so this is the first time he's kind of showed up for us. I, uh, I always attributed him to like that, that, like you guys said, cat on a keyboard kind of playing like from outside. And obviously what he did with nine inch nails. So I was kind of, kind of um, shocked when I saw his name on there because it's a, I mean, it's the piano work is fantastic. It's just very conventional compared to what I was. I mean, you can definitely hear him improvising a little bit here and there on the record, but yeah, he's not as free forming as you kind of hear on some of his later day. Uh, But yeah, I think that he was kind of maybe put into a little bit of a box uh, on this one, but uh I think he probably just got more involved with a jazz sound as his uh, career progressed. And especially as he probably got a little more um, leeway with David Bowie to do the cat on the keyboard. Tony, uh, listen to this. Tony, are you listening to me? Hey boss, I'm right here. I'm listening. You want to make some music? I got a letter from a young fan named Hideo Kojima from Japan. Hideo goes on about quite a few things here. I'm not quite sure what he's talking about half the time. But one idea he pushes towards us is that, well, I'll just let him speak for himself. Mr. Bowie, the man who sold the world, touched me greatly. And it opened up my mind that one day, in what I like to call Memes. Memes? I mean, I love my grandma too, but what are you talking about? What is this? Perhaps it's pronounced memes. I'm not quite sure. But these memes 
will take on a life of their own, and eventually truth will become irrelevant as the truth is recycled over and over again. And as a meme, man will spread it, what he says, virally, whatever that means, until the truth becomes a lie, which then becomes the distorted reality. He goes on from there, but interestingly, I think this inspires me for what we're trying to record here. This is the link between this Oliver Twist tale that you pushed on me and where I want to go, which is a bit darker, a place that asks, what is truth? Tony, am I making sense, or have I had too much of that, what is that over there? That diamond dust you bought from that man on the corner? Okay, yeah, I had an idea about doing an album about Oliver Twist, about a little ragamuffin that gets into scams and scraps. And if you want to build on that, if you want to change it, hey, you're the idea man. And second of all, I had nothing to do with that, uh, that pile of uh, booger sugar over there. Oh, come on now. This isn't the first time you've brought this stuff up here, Tony. <laughs> hey, fine, you got me, okay? Listen, the guy at the corner said it helps with the creative process. It's not even supposed to be that addictive. And I'll tell you right now, we've got so many ideas going on right now. We need some direction. That might help us. Somehow we need to try to strike a, a balance between these two directions we're going in. So I think let's take a, a ragtag ragamuffins and darken them down a bit. And this Hideo chap has got me thinking about what truth really is. I, I want to go outside. I want to okay. go. Okay. If you're going to go back outside, Tony, and run around again. I just got to go outside. I got to pace. I got to pace. I got to think about what's next for us. But I got to tell you right now, boss, you're talking crazy. You're talking crazy. We should go back to acoustic guitars and flutes. Man, I got to get outside. Have a smoke. Break something. Yes, with a head full of the diamond dust, which you thought I would love. Well, you know, the way you're acting, Tony, just go outside and why don't you be a diamond doll? Yeah, that's right. That's me, a troublemaking pup up. <laughs> Diamond Dog. And that sounds like album title material to me. Boss, I think you've got yourself a bingo. Oh, shit, it's a janitor. Quick, hide the stuff. Oi. What's all this, then? Nothing. Nothing. So this album is like, uh, is like a patchwork of scraps, right? There's two failed projects that are in this album, kind of bookending the album, right? It opens with... Um, a this like hunger city idea that he had when he's been known to say to to various people that like he would have loved to make it a concept album he just doesn't have the attention span for that so he only really had two or three songs that fit into that concept and then it ends with the 1984 he was going to make a a whole broad like like onstage musical for 1984 but the estate of um orville's estate put the kibosh on that so that kind of ends the album. And then there's a couple like rando songs in the middle, but even for it being a craft, you know, a, a, a patchwork piece, it was still executed as one project with one band, which I find interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, as we go through our track by track, you can definitely tell like there's a first half and a second half and that he just basically sandwiched two conceptual th- themes into one um, to one record that really does hit on that theme of just this dystopian um, landscape, both sides though, being equally theatrical though. Um, yeah. It is very interesting that at first I did think that this was a concept album as it starts. And we'll talk about that as we go track by track. Um, but then at the end there is really not really a strong narrative that holds it all together. It is like you said, two projects just 
here it is, you know. And not just go. two. There's two, and then there's a scattering of songs that don't fit into either of them in the middle. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. You can definitely. So, somehow he made it all tie together somehow. Well, the two and, concepts are about like different ideas of the future. And even though like Orwell's idea and his hunger city idea are two different ones, they're both dystopian enough to thematically fit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the best example of what the hell were they like trying to, trying to blend these things together that might not totally fit. Is that one of the bonus tracks is that uh, version of Dodo, which is smashed together in 1984, which seems like such a, a strange two pairing of songs. Yeah. Uh, we'll yeah. get to, we'll, we'll talk about that more specifically later. Uh, uh, one, one last little thing about the production that I want to talk about that I think is really interesting is um, he picked up the William S. Burroughs concept of cut up, uh, cutting up lines. So he would, you know, write a bunch of images on paper, slice them up, by lines and then rearrange like randomly arrange them in order, which was how Burroughs did like a bunch of books. Um, it's actually a concept that ha people have tied to like basically how like sample based music, like industrial gets their whole like thematic concepts from um, it all comes back to Burroughs and Bowie fully says, yeah, I totally took Burroughs idea here. And so a few of the songs on here, if the lyrics don't make any sense reading them out, it's because it's the cut up style. Yeah, I could, I mean, I'm sure as we go lyrically through the, some of the tracks, I, I definitely understand what you're saying. He was still trying to create this imagery uh, through those cut up concepts, but uh, it's that scream, stream of consciousness that you sometimes will see on like Skinny Puppy records, like you were saying with the industrial. And I believe um, right. Al Jorgensen used that um, Never Trust a Junkie sort of uh, Just One Fix. I think William Burroughs was even in the video. I could be wrong yeah. though. Yeah, okay. they lived together. They lived together for like a year. Okay. <laughs> the two of them. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I think like it's he, Bowie's kind of said it's basically giving blind chance, um, uh, blind chance like to direct uh, ideas your conscious mind wouldn't necessarily have considered otherwise. So uh, basically, when he hit writer's block, this is what he would do. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, he's still got his point across. I mean, I, I think that's uh, a very interesting uh, method, um, but I'm not against it. Right. Yeah, it works. Yeah. Uh, so it was. It was one thing I find interesting is this is recorded in uh, London and also the Netherlands, and something about this album to me screams 1970s New York. I don't know why. It does. I'm really. Surprised. Yeah, I'm really surprised it wasn't recorded in the states. Yeah. Uh, oh wow! I, this whole time I thought it was. I thought he was back in L.A. just because of uh, Cracked Actor, but I guess that came after. I guess it came. I after think he moved. He probably moved over here yeah. soon afterward. Right. And uh, he started really absorbing the American lifestyle, which we can talk about when we talk about the Cracked Actor documentary. Exactly. Um, another before we dive into the record. One thing I want to point out is it has a very striking album cover that's always stuck with me. I think this album cover is one of the before I became a David Bowie super fan. This album cover always stuck out in my mind as one of the ones that just I just remembered seeing it when I was younger. It's uh, you know, it's got 
it's if you're just looking at the front of it, it's him topless with a couple of uh, drawings of some. I think they're women that look like a cross between uh, the the weird uh, mutant dogs from Ghostbusters <laughs> and. I guess. And also the movie uh, Freaks is where he kind of got yeah. the inspiration from for that. Yeah, even calls out but Top Gun Freaks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, oh, artist okay, was, yeah. the artist was uh, Guy or Guy Peliart is the is the artist who drew this. Yeah. And if you unfold it, uh, the original artwork has uh, the cane. He, he has dog legs and you see David's Bowie. Uh, <laughs> yeah you see you see his ding dong um uh, but they yeah took that out. and i believe it was, it was airbrushed out of the final artwork at the time uh, to reappear later in re-releases that's right i, I guess um, you can even a- find if you if you happen to find a copy of his exposed little bowie um i guess it's worth like thousands of dollars it's uh it's an extremely rare collector's item from the original ones yeah, that's right I also like, I posted this on our Facebook page recently, but I, there, I love the, um, well, I, in the actual album, I love the cityscape that you see inside that looks just like a, it's a recognizable city, but it's clearly like after the fall, so to speak, it's a dystopian cityscape, but there's another one of Bowie's like Halloween Jack character holding this vicious dog. Who's like jumping and barking and, uh, like a, uh, by a leash. And that's a great picture as well. Uh, they're really cool artwork. Yeah. Uh, what did the critics say about this one when it, on, when it was released? It was this, when this one found, so when it was released, I think that the critics were expecting something more polished, like they've gotten on the, the last few Ziggy Stardust, Nell Adam saying even pinups. And what they get was this album we're going to talk about, which is very, uh, Freeform and nebulous, and the guitar work is kind of like scratchy, for lack of a better term. It's, it's a little sloppy, and, but it's serviceable. Yeah, and I I think upon release it wasn't as appreciated as it would become later. But I do know specifically the one review I wanted to pull up was a uh, Ken Emerson from Rolling Stone slammed this album. <laughs> Uh, clearly David Bowie is not the homo superior he once claimed and many believed him to be. And uh, he, he, he goes, he goes through here and says, you know, Dave Bowie's basically lost the plot. This album is just boring and sounds bad. And uh, I think a lot of that sentiment was out there. And over time, people have looked back more fondly on the record Yeah, because it's a great record. But uh, I mean, yeah, from Aladdin, from Aladdin Saint on, Bowie has tended to pander to what he thinks the public wants and to imitate, imitate those who have been more successful than he. Alice Cooper and Mick Jagger, for instance, he has deliberately cheapened himself and his music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Cream, which was the other music rag of the day, they only gave it a C plus. Um, the Chicago Tribune only gave it two stars out of five, uh, four as well. Um Pitchfork on the reissue, you know, it, it seems this album in modern times has grown to be more appreciated in his catalog. But at the time, it didn't really seem that most of music critics really uh, were, were liking it. Yeah, it seems like back in the 70s, it was 
it was exactly what it kind of was, which was a transitional record that kind of stuck out like a sore thumb and people didn't know what to do with it. Right. Um, I, I really, with all of the music we've listened to in our lives since it doesn't sound outlandish or wild, but I could imagine maybe in 1974, you would be completely this guy who released these really polished pop albums for lack of a better term and great rock albums putting out proto punk might've caught you off guard. You wouldn't even know what to do with it. Right. And I think part of it too is for the most part, his albums have track listing. His song selection has been very deliberate, deliberate. And this one is a hodgepodge mess. Not saying it's not saying the songs are bad. I'm just saying it, it it's not as thematically um, uh, watertight as his other works that might've thrown people off too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, without further ado, I think we should take a break. And uh, when we come back from our break, we'll go ahead and get right into diamond dogs. Track one, future legend. The shutters lifted an inch in temperance building high on Boaches Hill, and red mutant eyes gazed down on Hunger City. No more big wheels. Fleas the size of rats sucked on rats the size of cats, and 10,000 peploids split into small tribes, covered in the highest of the sterile skyscrapers like packs of dogs assaulting the glass fronts of Lovely Avenue. Future legend. So track one, uh, it starts out uh, very theatrical. Um, you know, you're definitely seeing the uh, the institution of a concept album potentially being set up. The foundation, uh, the narrator is setting the scene. This is not really setting, definitely setting the stage. And I, I use that term specifically because I feel that they definitely were trying to say this. The, the, this is the world we're going to play in. This is, this is the, the, the stage of hunger city. Right. Like it's kind of meta. Like, you know, you're watching a production. Right. Um, it's, it's not a song. It's more of a skit really, really reminds me, which he'll use this later in a true concept album of outside. Um, and you know, doesn't do anything for me. It's just basically like just a, like a little bit of a soundscape, just kind of the tuning of the instruments and then Bowie kind of doing his thing. There is a cool little vocal effect that he has towards uh, the end of his little narration. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that it's a scene setter rather than a, uh, a full on song that I could, I dig, but it's just one of those. Yeah. It's There's an introduction. There, there, two, two notables on this song. I love the synth work because it's kind of ahead of where like he's going to go more synthy later and he doesn't really go that synthy on the rest of the album, but I like, I like it there in the background. He's, he's just messing with, that's probably the Mellotron and the theremin or whatever he's messing with. Um, and then I like, I just love his delivery of fleas, the size of rats and rats, the size of cats. And yeah. uh, he starts like 10, laying, laying the imagery out. It's a glitter apocalypse. Yeah, the uh, I do like the electronic work on it. Uh, again, I, I like the name. The fact that it's called Future Legend, I appreciate because it is referencing some of his future sounds, which will be more uh, analog synthy. And the 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 way this song always, I, I like this song a lot actually. As far as stage setters go, 
because the way it manages to flow kind of gives me for whatever reason, I can't tell you why it scratches this itch, but do you guys remember the classic Nintendo game, Mega Man two? I mean, probably not in detail like you do, but yeah, I kind of have a vague rep uh, recollection. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've beaten Mega Man two. I, I beat it when I was a kid, a bunch of times I owned it. It was the first game I bought with my own money. I've completed it uh, maybe over a hundred times. I'm not. I remember you berating me for not being good at it last time we hung out with uh, and played Nintendo. Yeah, that sounds about on brand for me. And (laughs) it has the opening credits of that game, though. It says in the year 20XX, blah, blah, blah. And then the robots did this and that. And Mega Man has to stop them. And then after it has the little, uh, the words finished crossing the screen, it starts to rise up the side of a skyscraper. And when it gets to the top, you see Mega Man and the music kicks in. I do. Yeah. And that's how this song now. makes me feel. I feel like we're watching, you know, we start at the ground level and we're, we're rising up the skyscraper. And then at the end, he says, you know, the year of the diamond dogs. It just gives me that same rising action vibe that I love in a, in a more cinematic way. But really, I mean, this song yes. only sets up diamond dogs. You could make a case maybe for the, the next three songs. Maybe it's a stretch. But then even the 1984 songs are its own. I mean, you can't have 1984 and then have Hunger City. I don't know. They just, I get that they, they're close enough to fit. They're both dystopian. But one is like after the fall where somebody like Halloween Jack, you know, controls a destroyed Manhattan. And the other one is like a full on fascist government taking over. It's, I, I don't know. I, I disagree. I think you could have not. I think the in I think in the world of the nineteen. I think in the world of nineteen eighty four, the Diamond Dogs can definitely exist. I, there's the the world of nineteen eighty four is a cold Big Brother. What are you doing? Don't do that. The government will kill you. Land and inside this land, there's this Orwellian bunch of punks that are you know in the in the back alleys. I think they, I think they live together just fine. In my, you know, that's how I, I feel. It's not that much of a stretch. It doesn't bother me that much. It's just I like this. I actually like this intro so much. I wish it covered more than just Diamond Dogs. I wish I wish that the imaging, the imagery that he's calling up in this, came up throughout the album and was more like a concept. I guess it would just it would just it, it would just make me happier. And the fact that it it doesn't and it's just kind of. So what you're saying, Eric, I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it really does sound like um, there's a promise that never gets fulfilled from this intro. I do. I, yep. Yep. I would say so. I would say so. Because this is all, this is all all Bowie, right? 1984 is, is somebody else that Bowie, it's still Bowie, but he's making songs out of somebody else's ideas. This is all Bowie. So I would have loved more of this. And we get that in Diamond Dogs, the song Diamond Dogs, but that's about it. Yeah, the actual the uh, the idea of the Diamond Dogs, he actually he, it came from Dickens, uh, you know, the, it, or not directly from Dickens, but you know, like Oliver Twist, and he said, "I had in my mind that kind of half wild boys 1984 world, and there were these ragamuffins, but they were a bit more violent than ragamuffins. I guess they staggered through from a Clockwork Orange too." They've taken over this barren city, the city that was falling apart. They've been able to break into windows uh, and things, so they dressed themselves up in fur and diamonds, but they had snaggle teeth, really filthy, kind of like violent Oliver Twists. 
It was a take on what if these guys had gone malicious? If Fagan's gang had gone absolutely apeshit. And that's what I'm saying is that in the world of 1984, the Diamond Dogs exist. They're a, they're, they're a section of this larger uh, oppressive world. Yeah, I, I, I can go. I can go there. I can absolutely go there. Um, but I, I, but I do feel like there's a promise that even the 1984 songs don't, don't satisfy, but, um, let's go on to diamond dogs. Yeah. Actually not yet. Ah, I do want to say two more things. So it does sound Eric that you also, to Mark's point about it, remind him of the outside interludes. Yes. So you probably would have liked to have interludes where this character that sounds like some robot vampire comes back and, and, and catches you up on what's going on next. Uh, one last thing I will say about this song is it uh, goes to the same place in my brain that the glass spider lives in. Um, yes. Yeah. And, you know, in fact, when we were doing research for um, Never Let Me Down, um, one of the reviewers for Never Let Me Down was like, now, Glass Spider isn't the worst song that Bowie's ever written. That title actually goes to Future Legend. And <laughs> which I think it was a pretty cynical way of. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, you know, because, yeah, I, I definitely see the, the, the comparison. I definitely see how they're related. But I think that Glass Spider, instead of having it be too separate, he does do, I think, even a more effective job. And I'll give credit for him uh, for a record that I feel was a just full of misfires. Um, I, I do think that Glass Spider was something that he, he did pretty effectively on that record. Right. Well, he, that one, he starts out with a monologue just, and turns into an actual song. Yeah. Right. And it does have like its own little sense of world. I mean, that was clearly not a concept record, um, but I have no problem with this being the intro and I don't think it's bad. I think that the synth work and kind of the musicians kind of tuning up and really setting this, the scene of what's going to happen. Um, but as we go further into this record, there's certainly a first half and a second half. The first half is its own little separate world. And the second half, it's its own little separate world of 1984. And I, I, I get what point you're trying to make that they both exist within the same world. It's just one is over here. And then one is more, uh, broad and more, uh, you know, the larger scope of the society that this potentially hunger city is living in. Um, I just, yeah, really sometimes kind of have to squint to see the connection between the first half of the record and the second half of the record. Thank you, Mark. That's what I was trying to say. Thank you. No, I, I agree with both of you, Eric, you, 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 you made your point eloquently as well. Let's move on to one of the highlights of David Bowie's entire catalog, diamond dogs, the title track diamond dogs. that was diamond dogs a six minute or so blast of rock and roll which i hold in the highest esteem 
But before I talk about it, I'm going to make Mark talk about it. So I, uh, this is a classic David Bowie song. There is no question. Um, I really enjoy uh, listening to the, uh, I think I have the 1990 Ryko disc version saved on my computer. And then on uh, one of Ryko. the streaming, yeah, the Ryko, Ryko. And then one of the streaming services, I uh, listened to the 2016 version. And the underwater backing vocals um, really come out in the forefront in that 2016 model uh, version. I do I'm think so that- happy. I am so happy you brought those up because whenever I hear those goddamn things, yeah. do either of you know what classic comedic skit I think of? No, what? What? Eric, do, do the do the underwater vocals remind you of ever, anything? Possibly an altered state of drug atushits. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the bonk. Ah! Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they sound just like that damn bong. That's funny. Um, Let's order a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> now you guys hear it. I do. I do. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> yes. Um, I, uh, but I think the guitar gets a little lost in the mix during the choruses. It, it's really in the forefront during the verses, uh, especially at the intro. I mean, no question the song has uh, a little bit of swagger. Um, a little bit of swagger. It has this, a lot this, of swagger. This song, this song has a has a cod piece full of swagger. This so, is this is this song is swagger personified. Here, I. I and before I don't want to be misunderstood here, but I, I, I really do love this song. It does straddle the line between being very campy and very artistic. And it can be a tad repetitive. You had pinpointed the fact that it is six minutes long. And if you're not really being hooked into the melody and to kind of the song structure, it could get to the point if you're not, uh, ready for the ride. It could get a little annoying for it to be that long and not really take you places. But I do think that it, it can be a tad repetitive, but for me, it never gets annoying. I think it's a great song. Um, I know that uh, it is it permeates throughout uh, our pop culture. It was featured in uh, video games, and I know that Steve will be mentioning that. Uh, but it was also the the group of dancers and the movie I absolutely detest. Um, and I've never actually seen the, the movie all the way through. When, in Moulin Rouge, those group of dancers are known as the Diamond Dogs. Yeah. Um, well, that, that movie also features a Beck cover with Timberland uh, covering. Doing it's a pretty song. good cover. Yeah. yeah. But Eric, what do you think? Oh, I, I, I love this song. Um, I mean, uh, this album does take me on a roller coaster of how much I can really get into this album. And it starts so strong for me going from that intro into this song. I mean, I'm all in at this point. Um, Yes. It's six minutes, but um, the story keeps me going. Like his lyrics are downright like dark comedy when he's like, they pulled you out the oxygen tent. So like already their visuals are making you think about this post-apocalyptic world. They pulled you out the oxygen tent. You asked for the latest party. So even still people are still like wrapped up in the social scene. With your silicon hump, I, I think that's interesting. It's, oh shit! Keep going. With your silicon hump and your ten-inch stump, <laughs> diamond, and then it just keeps going. Where he's like, um, 
you don't know if he's talking about a him or a her, but um, they are like, then it, it says something about how you crawled on your hands and knee with like, not knees, knee, one knee, because they're like missing limbs. Like it's just this grotesque painting of the future, but funny at the same time. Um, the yeah. story keeps me going. Um, so I also don't get bored. The guitar riff, you're right, does get lost. And that's what I think is funny. This song gets a lot of flack for being like a Rolling Stones ripoff. And I can kind of hear the bluesy riff during the verses and what they're saying, but it's almost too sloppy. And yes, it gets too hidden. I almost see it more in like proto-punk, like you were saying, Steve, than, than, than Rolling Stones ripoff. Like, because the, it becomes an afterthought as the song goes on. Um, and yeah, when you get to the, the crazy underwater background vocals and the weird just overlaying of sounds, it just becomes it's a very strange um, avant-garde track that just keeps me stomping my foot with the cowbell the whole way through. I'm, I'm into it. Yeah, apparently he was him and the Rolling Stones were hanging out with each other around this time, apparently. And I think it uh, it rubbed off. Um, yeah, I. I hear what you're both saying, but I I think that while this song not not very few songs on this album are flawless, maybe save one. But I think for what this song tries to do, it effectively executes exactly what it wants to do, which is to be a grooving track that paints this world of Hunger City, and you can't quit you know uh, shaking your 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 kneecaps to it, and. I find the guitar work on it. I actually really, I think it's, it's got a great groove. And I think for a guy that, you know, he was like doing folk music and whatnot, not really an electric warrior, if you will. I think he holds his own on this track. Enough. Yeah. I, 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 I think it's above service. I think it's an iconic guitar lick. I do. I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no. When I, I wonder, when I, I, I always wonder I what would happen if Mick Ronson was actually on this record, though. They would probably be, they would probably be talking about how the, you know, the, the Mick Ronson Bowie partnership released uh, another an, another classic record. Probably it probably it would be up there right behind Aladdin Sane on the quality uh, charts. I'm sure. Yeah. In people's minds. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember the first time I I, I listened to this album. And I remember very specifically he, like hearing this song for the first time and just being so bowled over by it. And yes, it's long, but it never, it never seems too long for me. And I actually get excited when it gets into that third verse and I'm like, all right, yes, it's still going. Like, <laughs> That that yeah. that that delivery is so just drenched in swagger. I love it. Yeah, it's uh his delivery throughout the whole thing. I I I can imagine him just sat sashaying back and forth 
across the the stage uh pointing at people as he, he tells them it's the year of the diamond dogs um it actually was a single which is kind of shocking i don't it doesn't shout single to me there was a single mix wasn't there Eric? there was yeah it's called the ktel a bit shorter. the ktel edit um i think it came out a little later i think it was actually came out as a b-side on something else um and it, yeah it's a little shorter and there's a little uh outro musical outro at the end um but yeah you can't beat can't beat the original yeah no it, it was on some of the it, it was on some of the tours throughout the 70s and then it was dropped for decades um it didn't come back until 1996 and uh i want to say that when one of the times that i saw him he played it uh i don't know i think i think the the guitar work I I think it's a lot better than anyone gives him credit for on this track. And uh, I, I don't know, just uh, er, everything about it works for me. Even, even right down to the bow, wow, woof, woof, you know, oh. <laughs> bow, wow. I mean, I like uh, uh, vocal interludes like that little ad libs. Uh, so that doesn't bother me either. Just some of the, I mean, Eric's usually a lyric guy, but I, I just love some of the, some of the, maybe they were cut up lyric lines on this, this track that you you'll catch your death in the fog. I love that imagery. Oh, and the, the whole, uh, the Halloween Jack is a cool cat. He lives on top of Manhattan chase. The elevator's mm-hmm. broke. So he slides down a rope. You could just imagine like the intro of his character in like know- a movie, just like Tarzaning down the rope as he, uh, exactly. You notice that actual verse, the way the drums lock into the cadence of the delivery of the lyrics is really well done. Right. Um, it's, and you can hear it really well on some of those remasters. Uh, for me, the song is a, a, it's, I know I'm the, to use internet terms, the stand for this record. And definitely this, this track is one of the reasons why, and yes, to take it to the next level, uh, in my favorite video game series of all time, which I've mentioned before, the main characters are part of a group called the diamond dogs in metal gear. And, uh, maybe, uh, I keep threatening this, but I think what we're going to try to do is a, an overarching uh, video games and how they relate to David Bowie episode where we might talk more about that. But uh, yeah, the metal, the metal gear series has a lot of call uh, of, of callbacks and influences from David Bowie to some of the character designs. And very obviously the fact that one of the main crew is called diamond dogs. And also the man who sold the world is actually a big plot point, but enough about that for now. So are we ready to go? So we had decided, yeah, I'm ready. Uh, so we had decided for the next suite of songs, um, Sweet Thing Candidate and Sweet Thing Reprise, um, to do them all in one conversation. So we're going to now give you a little sample of that suite right now. Uh, so we've got Sweet Thing Candidate and Sweet Thing Reprise, which will be track three, four, and five. I'm glad that you're older than me. Makes me feel important and free. Does that make you smile? Isn't that me? I'm in your Sweet things, boys, boys, it's a sweet thing, sweet. 
Uh, Eric, for some reason, I think this is this is kind of in your wheelhouse. This big fucking medley, so sure. you can start. All right. Um, yeah. So we got to go from this dystopian uh, dystopian party scene <laughs> to um, this this very strange uh, song that's about love and hope and also somebody who's like a wheeler and dealer trying to make it. And a case could be made that it's this person trying to make it through this future. But once again, like Mark said, you kind of got to squint to make that case. Um, and it takes, it, it takes nine minutes for us to do this. Right. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the entire duration of these three right. songs that go yeah. together, which are basically one giant song. Exactly. Um, so sweet thing is a slow song. Um, Bowie's playing guitar and sax. Garson is, is just chomping on the piano. Um, it's really good. Just like big hits on that piano that keep the, keep the, the, uh, that set the beat. And then Herbie and Tony come in on the bass and drums. Um, and, uh, I guess he told, uh, Newman to play his snares. Like he was a French drummer boy watching the first, uh, uh, basically like watching the first, uh, squad enter a war. Um, was that during the candidate section? Uh, yeah, it might, that you're talking it might about. Yeah, tr- because that's when I start hearing the drummer boy thing coming in big time. So, in fact, exactly, my memory too. could be serving me wrong, but actually, the drums don't really make an impression until the candidate. Um, during this suite. Uh, so there's just a couple like little bits of sweet thing that kind of tie into the other stuff when he's talking about cheap hope. Uh, boys, it's a cheap thing. Um, uh, if you want it, boys, come here and get it. It's kind of, the, it's almost like Halloween Jack being like a wheeler and dealer if he's going there. Um, uh, is it nice in your snowstorm freezing your brain? I mean, he could be talking about Coke. He could be talking about brainwashing as 1984. We'll kind of tie into that later. But I, once again, I could be stretching here. Um, and then at one part he starts to, can't you see that I'm scared and lonely? And he just starts shredding on his vocals. Uh, there's some great vocal work on these three tracks. So yeah, that, that, that goes back to the state of mind he's in with this album. And what we'll talk about when we talk about cracked actor, 
he seemed very lonely at this time. And I, I think, was he still married? To Angie Bowie? You know, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure about that. Actually. Are they estranged at this time? Because uh, I definitely, this song, that line in particular, really just, and his delivery of it, uh, really uh, tears the, uh, uh, turns the, the heartstrings for me. Oh yeah. Um, That's a huge part of the song for me. Yeah. And, and I feel like he's really wearing his heart in the sleeve uh, on that section. Yeah. He's really, this album, he, he's, it's, it's a weird future sci-fi thing, but I think he really wears his, uh, his emotions, his fragility um, for all to see on a couple of these songs. So yeah, he was married to Angie, yeah, you Angie know. Bowie, and they divorced in 1980. But I don't know if that means they were at this point if they were even still. Uh, no, that was that was kind of like. But I've got you know I think we all have a friend that probably gets separated but stays together with the person for tax purposes for years or some shit. That's what was going on here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because he was you know in the last episode station the station we were talking about his relationship with Slash's mom, you know so. Yeah. Um. So for me, like, um, oh no, yeah. I'll uh, I'll just do a quick overview. Um, what I kind of enjoy about this suite of songs is that he, you can tell that he's doing a little bit of character work by his vocal delivery. Um, some are in a lower register. You know, this song starts in a lower register that kind of reminds me, and I'm not trying to be snarky about this. Uh, but just this is how my lizard brain works. But it reminds me of how Buffalo Bill talks in Silence of the Lambs. It's a very sleazy. Um, but then you see uh, just a range of vocal work that's happening in the song that you had talked about. Well, you see that I'm scared and lonely. That whole section where he's just soaring vocals is excellent. And so his vocal delivery in this uh, Sweet Thing candidate and then the reprise or prize, whatever, um, is extremely entertaining that you can just see how he can go from his lows to his highs. I really enjoy the little cool little guitar solo as it fades into candidate. Um, and it starts with the sax, like all of these, um, breaks between the two, uh, it always has saxophone being the bridge between the, uh, uh the transitions. Um, the marching drum beat candidate has such a sleazy sounds. And as it picks up the pace, it doesn't have an AB structure whatsoever in terms of verse chorus verse. Um, it's just this midsection of the song that, uh, it's very frenetic and it's pacing. When I mean frenetic, it's just, it builds and builds. It has that rising action that Steve likes to talk about. And then it just stops and it falls off a cliff and it goes back to that sweet thing reprise. And it just does goes back to that original melody that uh, closes everything out in a really good, you know, nice package. And it's, it's built like a show tune. It really is like, I could really see the, um, the actor on stage. If you, if you will, uh, a lot of, a lot of that is Mike Garson's piano work. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I'm not an Andrew Lloyd Webber guy or a musical theater guy, but or a ghost uh, or a ghost fan. <laughs> <laughs> but I can absolutely see this being like you know a stage production, you know, a, you know, a, 
a who's Tommy kind of thing. Um, cause I think concept albums were really at the height of their powers during the seventies. And, uh, I could really just see what he was trying to do here. That's just my overview. I think there, it's an excellent, it's an excellent trio. Of songs. I agree. And, uh, that, that guitar solo between bridging the, the two songs, that is some bionic guitar sounds that they, that they're using on that. I love, I love whatever the guitar is doing there. Um, but I think you're spot on. It's I, all David. I, I, yeah. Yeah. And he's doing great. And I, and I think you're spot on that the song really goes back and forth from this character that he's that Halloween Jack or whoever is presenting himself as like a, as a hustler. Sometimes he seems like a politician wheeling and dealing. Sometimes he seems like a, like a hustler, like a street hustler. Um, and then the, the song kind of goes on his like facade breaks and yeah, it becomes more desperate and more sad. And it kind of ends when it goes back to the reprise, it ends on that, that tone, that sweet thing tone of just, um, just, uh, just being kind of pretty raw. Spreading rumors and lies on stories that made up. Some make you sing and some make you scream. One makes you wish that you've never been seen. But there's a shop on the corner that's selling happier and shady. candidate section though we'll buy some drugs and watch a band and then jump into the river holding hands i don't know why i just love the uh yeah i love the uh the imagery that that that, that conjures up um i'm having so much fun with poisonous people spreading rumors and lies and the stories they made up and just um probably a little a little true life uh stuff there um well yeah, i definitely think that living 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 the big rock the rig rock Living the big rock lifestyle is really reflected on some of the uh, 
uh, in between the lines on some of these songs. Right. Um, apparently there's a great story. Uh, this is one of the things I got from the pushing ahead, the Dame website. There's a great story that apparently at the same time, one of his, I mean, he had like no attention span for anything, but during recording of this, he was also filming what he would hope to be a diamond dogs movie, which the footage is somewhere. I haven't seen this footage. I've just, I've just heard about it, but apparently in some of the footage in the background, you can see John Lennon. And he's just berating Bowie. He's like, what the bloody hell are you doing, boy, with all this mutant crap? <laughs> That's pretty great. He's just like, just yeah. like shouting at him. And there's like a clay model of Hunger City. And like Bowie's just, it's just an idea that's never going to come to fruition. And, and John Lennon knows it. He's just, he's just like, what is this shit? <laughs> yeah, no, him and John, him and John Lennon were buddies. John Lennon's uh, all over young Americans, as we know. And uh, somebody kind of recently on the internet just said, man, imagine imagine the alternate timeline where John Lennon wasn't killed and all of the artists he got to yeah. work with. And I got really sad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just, oh yeah. He would, he would have done some cool stuff with, with like younger people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I love these three songs. Uh, the way the first time I, re- I always thought they were one song for maybe a couple of years. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And then I was like, Oh wait, no, they're broken up. And I was like, Oh, these, these breaks make sense. That's cool. Uh, that middle section in candidate where they're brokering a deal is portrayed so well of, uh, just a slinky kind of, a. I imagine the wolf from Pinocchio yep. is, yeah. is, is, the, is the main yeah. character. Honest John. Yeah, Honest John. exactly. Honest John. I, I'm pretty sure they've always referenced Honest John before. <laughs> uh, it's just, it, it, it really just, just the, it's so cinematic. It's, it's great. Um, you guys, you touched on that guitar solo. The way that guitar solo towards the end of the whole uh, suite uh, kind of dances with the the piano work is is wonderful. And yeah, he goes from the vampire voice intro, which uh, you know he's doing his he's doing his even though he came first, he's doing his best Axl Rose vampire voice there. And then yeah. you get you get those soaring just uh notes in in the third part of it where he's just he's doing his best I, I said this before it's is it david or is it tina turner and that's a compliment and uh yeah i, I just i i the whole thing it, it it clicks on all all levels for me i think uh i think it's definitely the highlight of the album actually yeah. uh, when taken in total i think it's the highlight of the, uh, as much as, as as i enjoy the opening track I think that these these three songs go together almost flawlessly. And again, there's weird disparate ideas there that maybe he didn't come up with all at once. But I think in this case, his cut up method audibly, in addition to lyrically, it, it works. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'll, I'll second exactly what you said about it being probably the highlight of the record. It'd be hard for me to pinpoint. I mean, I think there's a lot of quality on this record, but I think that would be probably the highlight. What stands out representative to me of what the best work on this record is. So yeah, that's my favorite part. And one one thing I really love about it is that, um, remember earlier when I mentioned in the opening track, I get this image that reminded me of Mega Man of it moving up the skyscraper to present hunger city. The, yeah. the second track, when it comes in with that sax whale, the way the sax whales and then the piano kind of uh, stomps on it, it makes me feel when I'm listening to it, like we're moving from 
one scene of this play to another one. It really seems like a good, it, it, it paints the picture of a swipe and we're going, okay, what's going on over here with this guy over here? Uh, the way it, 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 that transition audibly is uh, very cinematic to me. I, I'm going to use the word cinematic a whole bunch in this episode. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah. And it's, it's a fair, it's a fair adjective to use. So and, uh, and to quote, Oh, go on. No, you go on. No, no, no. I'm just, I was going to wrap up with the other versions of the song. If you have anything else to say about this, go for it. Yeah. I'll bring it back to me when you're done. Okay. So there are, um, other versions of candidate. Um, you've got, let's see here. Just a second. I mean, um, just by Eric Klex's notes, the only one I really um, was able to get my hands on, um, I know that you've made them available and we'll link to them. There's a bonus version on the 1990 Ryko disc that I had. Um, it's a completely different structure. It has a more traditional song structure with actually a verse, chorus, verse. Yeah, that's the uh, demo not- version. That's the demo version that he was yeah. going to use for the 1984 play. And it's pretty fucking solid. Yeah. Um, it's an acoustic guitar, has a piano. It's a jaunty little tune. I, I, I enjoy it. It's, it's, I think there's a few lyrics that they share, but for the most part, it's a completely different song. They, they just share the same yeah. name. Uh, yeah, it does. And uh, thematically, I mean, if you wanted to see if he took some ideas from this and then turn it into its own standalone song, that's what the demo version is. That was going to be um, from 1984. So seek that one out. And then um, also they take more of the original version of this and and mix it into, so they take the actual Diamond Dogs version of Candidate and they remix it in kind of its own, kind of more of its own standalone track for the 2001 film Intimacy by Therese Chereau. Uh, It's not a film I am aware of at all, but it's called the Intimacy Mix for candidate. You're not intimately familiar with it. At I all. am not, I am not, but, uh, that's also out there and worth a listen. If you want to see this, the, the diamond dogs version of the song standalone on, on its own. Yeah. Apparently there's a, and we say, apparently it's when I, whenever I use the word, apparently for these studies, it's cause I've read something, but I haven't heard it yet. Right. And in this case, apparently Michael Kamen, who works with David Bowie here and there, uh, Michael Kamen being, uh, how would you describe him? He was he, like, he was, he was, he was a big, uh, he was like a composer, a film composer. Yeah, like, like a a of, composer. Yeah. Yeah. And he did some work with Pink Floyd, um, yeah. specifically on the final cut. A underappreciated album. And, uh, no, he, there's a, there's a version of sweet thing out there with, uh, it's a soul version with Ava Cherry on vocals, but I haven't heard it. And there's also a cover version, which I haven't heard, but I'm going to seek out by uh, John Wasser, Joan Wasser. And she's part of the uh, Anthony and the Johnsons crew. So I'd I'd, I'd actually like to hear that, that crew do a bunch of David Bowie songs, which reminds me, I forgot to mention the cover versions for diamond dogs. And we discussed the Beck one, right? Beck and Timberland. Yeah, but did you did you guys look up the just Beck live? Yes, he, he did a great he did a, tra- like traditional version of the song. Yeah, yeah, I, I like his his traditional live version. Um, it reminded me of when Beck was good, and also uh, <laughs> friend of my show, Gilby Clark, who was the 
one of the many guitar players in Guns N' Roses after the original band, he recorded a version on one of his solo albums. It's all right. Of Diamond Dogs. Yeah. There you go. All right. Next track. Rebel. Rebel. Before uh, actually. <laughs> sorry. Steve always does this. I know. I know. I'm I, when Eric's editing it, I like to like I'm proposing a challenge to Eric. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the way the song ends with the 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 proto punky squelching guitar. The way the next song starts, I don't know if you planned it, but that riff is kind of an in the sloppiness of this part. The inverse of it is the crisp riff of Rebel Rebel. I have a feeling I'm going to be in the minority on this. Uh, I think it's a catchy guitar lick, but I, I really think this song is overrated. Um, I can see why it's a single and it's a mm. fan favorite, um, but I get bored with this song pretty fast. Um, I don't know what it is, uh, but I, I, in my opinion, I feel like this is the song that launched Billy Idol's career. Like, he used this song as his template... <laughs> in his look and his just overall style. Um, I think you're making some connections there just because of the rebel. Probably. I don't, probably. I don't but see. Lyrically, I don't see. I think it's, I it's, it's a that, pretty, but... I mean, I, I'm like I said, I'm in the minority on this one as I was doing prep work as like, I heard those opening cat, like guitar, like I will fully admit it's super catchy. It's an iconic song for David Bowie. He plays it um, all the. He played it all the time uh, live, all the way up until he stopped touring. I just don't care for this song. I don't know what it is. It's just one of those songs that I'm just like, all right, you play your song. And so I, this song wouldn't be on my top twenty Bowie songs uh, either, Mark. I mean, I, I see yeah. what you're saying. Um, I mean, I think like musically, yeah, it's got this riff that goes, this it's got cowbell that is unrelentless. Um, Mike Garson's doing some crazy shit, but yeah. you can't really hear it. Um, but I think when you dig into what the song is, this was Bowie's nail in the coffin of his, of Ziggy and his glam rock right. phase. Um, I like what it's about. It's kind of like a older jaded person in like a scene that, sees like this young person that sees himself in this young person who is kind of a mess, kind of a hot mess, but just really into it and doesn't care. And kind of, it kind of like relights his fire, which for it being his, his closing thought on glam rock, I think that's kind of a cool way to do yeah. it. Um, uh, so, I mean, uh, anyways, that's, that's uh, something I think is is interesting. I do 
I, if I hear this song, like if it pops up in a movie or if it pops up, you know, randomly, if I'm somewhere and I hear it, and I can't help but just smile. You're shopping at Target. Right. <laughs> I can't help yeah. but smile and get kind of like, kind of get a little pep in my step. Um, but I mean, when I lay it out in the pantheon of Bowie tracks, it's not in there for me. Um, but I think it's an important song for him. Yeah, I think I, mean, I think that where Mark might be coming from a little bit, I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but or ideas in your head. But I think a lot of that might come from how just familiarity breeds contempt, possibly. I think you're right. I think it, it's just in my mind it maybe just overplayed. Yeah, because definitely when I think to get back to uh, Mark hearing Sound and Vision at Target today, which I think is awesome. When I think of the I went to Target and I bought a David Bowie T-shirt, it probably says Rebel Rebel on it. Yeah. And yeah, it's definitely the the mass marketed David Bowie that is on the shirts that we buy for our three year olds like I do is that version of David Bowie is the Rebel Rebel version of David Bowie. Yeah. But that being said. That guitar riff is undeniable, and it's a catchy pop song like "All Get Out." And I think, as far as pop songs go, it's kind of a it's kind of a ballsy pop song. It was it was it was a single, and there's a lot of gender identity kind of discussed in it, which uh, back then was just starting to become a topic people would talk about, and and now it's a very important top topic these days. So yeah. I. Uh, and that's got that cowbell, which is undeniable. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a few versions of the song. Um, so the U.S. single actually, well, the U.K. single came out. It's pretty similar to, to this one, um, slightly shorter. Then the U.S. single came out, and it's a completely like redone version. If you've heard the U.S. single, uh, it it's it's shorter it's only like it's under three minutes it's faster the tempo's actually at a quicker clip um and there's brand new per percussion laid in like hand percussion laid in and um a whole new backing vocal so uh and it actually starts with that hot tramp before the song even starts uh there's a whole kind of intro thing uh i really like the u.s single it's kind of cool that they made that um and then, uh, but it's so different from the original that they took it off the shelves pretty quickly and replaced it with the UK single because that's the one you can actually get on the album. Um, but the US single is a little bit more campy um, in kind of a fun way. So worth checking out. Um, also, there's a very weird version called Rebel, Rebel Never Gets Old. Have you heard this? Um, that no. was during the reality <laughs> era, right? Yes, when reality came out, it was a B-side and it was a mashup of Rebel Rebel and Never Get Old. Three, two.
of reality. And it's ridiculous. I feel like a couple years before there was that weird Elvis, like, you remember that? There was like that Elvis dance mashup, like a little less conversation. Yeah. Um, a little less conversation <laughs> with uh, what's his face. Yeah. Was it Fat Boy Slim or was it, it like um, something XL or? It might have been. Yeah. I feel like well, they were going for that. Something XL is the guy that ended up doing the music for uh, Mad Max Fury Road. So he gets uh, whatever card we revoked, he got back. But uh, <laughs> no, I think this, I think this was um. Junkie XL? No, Junkie XL is the guy that did Mad Max. Uh, okay. But no, he used to do really bad techno music too. You're right. We're both right here. Uh, yeah. But no, I think I think it was more like a Fat Boy Slim type guy. Yeah. But either way, yeah, I, I could see them kind of going for that. The artwork of that that single is horrendous. It's more of that reality. Yes. Um, I'm glad that David lived long enough just to make a couple more albums. So the last album we reality is a good album, but it has terrible artwork. Oh yeah. And yeah, I'm glad. Well, when we get to that, he was really working with a lot of pop producers and nothing against pop music, but it was just, um, it seemed like a, like an older guy trying to fit in with a younger crowd. Yeah. It just, it, some of that was just off. Which is interesting considering we're talking about rebel rebel right now, which is kind of maybe what this song might be about. I don't know. Uh, there's also yeah. a 2003 complete re-recording of this song. Um, for the Charlie's Angel soundtrack. Got your mother in the world. She's not sure if you're a boy or a girl. Hey, baby, your hair's all right. Hey, baby, stay out tonight. You like me and you like it all. You love dancing and you look divine. You love bands when they play it hard You want more and you want it fast Put you down, you say I'm wrong You track your thing, you put them on I was not a fan of that uh, remake. I, I thought it was unnecessary and it sounded very... It sounded exactly like what it is. It sounded like... For the Charlie's Angel movie, let's re-record uh, Rebel Rebel in 2003, right. and it sounds just like that. It's it's a curio if you want to see a different take on it. He does some of his what I call latter day Bowie uh, vocal work, where he's doing like a lot of oh oh, like a little like wails and moans, which is fine. He does a good job on it, um, but it's unnecessary. Yeah. Um... As far as other cover versions of it, I don't even think it's worth going into because there's probably dozens. Uh, I that's. I, I mean, some of the highlight. I haven't listened to any of these covers, but I know Joan Jett and the Black Hearts did it. Uh, Sue Jorge did it. Ricky Lee Jones and even our uh, <laughs> uh, Peter Frampton uh, did a cover of it. Oh, I'm glad uh, you brought up Peter Frampton because I forgot to mention this when we talked about uh, the Never Let Me Down album. Uh, yeah. A coworker of mine mentioned that she uh, went backstage with Mr. Frampton in San Francisco back in the seventies. Oh, and what transpired? Oh, uh, yeah, I'll leave it. At, I'll leave it at that. But yes, uh, <laughs> she's uh, she's she knows about Peter's Frampton, if you will. Okay. Oh my! <laughs> I mean, yeah, Frampton's Peter. Um, <laughs> So uh, here is one funny uh, anecdote of this song 
from um, uh, Pushing Ahead the Dame website. Uh, Bowie tells a story that um, he was in a hotel room. Uh, and, uh, and this is like in the eighties and I can't, and he was like on tour or making a movie or something. And he was in a hotel by himself and someone above him in the hotel, thin walls was playing rebel rebel on an electric guitar in his hotel room, like in, in their hotel room above him. And they were doing it terribly. They were just butchering the riff. And, uh, Bowie finally walks upstairs and is about to just like, he's just like, fuck it. I'm going to humiliate this guy. I'm just going to tell him how bad he's doing, but maybe I'll give him a little thrill kind of thing. And they knock on the door and who answers it, but John McEnroe, tennis player extraordinaire. Oh boy. <laughs> and apparently he's just shredding terribly to rebel rebel up there. <laughs> That's wow. funny. I love John McEnroe. <laughs> he's, I'm not a tennis fan at all, but John McEnroe actually, yeah, anytime there's a, a an athlete who's known for being a hothead or a, a, a kind of a semi lunatic, I always uh, I'm enthralled by them. John McEnroe is one of those. Right. Uh, yeah. Another another anecdote from this era is that uh, you guys, speaking of the Target T-shirts, you know the image of David Bowie with the the eye patch. Yeah. Yeah. That, that yeah. actually that came from a. A, a recording for the Dutch television show Top Pop, and he was going to play Rebel Rebel on it, but he had pink eye, and so that's why he was wearing the eye patch. That was the only time he wore that eye, the, the, the did that eye patch look. Um, that's funny. I will post uh, somewhere on our socials. Uh, my son Lennox, who no doubt will tell us about this album a little later, he was the Diamond Dogs era Bowie uh, for Halloween last year, and he did a great job. I patched. You did do a good job. Yeah, huh. yeah well, Rebel Rebel. It's a great song. That's. Uh, I mean, you could probably take this song and do a uh, a podcast just about this song if you wanted to. It's 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 really well known. That guitar riff is undeniable. Uh, it's been covered by the Bay City Rollers, Brian Adams, Def Leppard. Uh, you know, it's everybody knows this song, and if you were to watch the the VH1 uh, clip show version of the history of music, they would probably end up using this song, but it uh, does not mean it's the highlight of this record. No. Been rock and roll with me. Yes. It's, this is a step in the right direction. Trying to remember to meet. I would take a foxy kind of stand. Rock and roll with me, uh, co-written with a man credited as Warren Peace. Real name was Jeffrey Alexander McCormick. He was one of Bowie's entourage, backup dancer, 
uh, backup vocalist. They did some songs together. Uh, just apparently they just whipped this one out in a weekend. It was supposed to be a way for Bowie to kind of address his relationship with his fans. Um, holy hell does this song not belong on this album. It does not fit at all. Um, but you know, I, well, I, I like the music. The music sounds, it reminds me of something off velvet undergrounds loaded, which I, even though it's the least noisy of the bunch out of character for me, I think it's the best velvet underground album. I do enjoy that velvet yeah. underground album. I think it like uh, sweet. Oh, sweet. Oh, yeah. Nothing. That, is, that, uh, that's absolute, what this, this that's, song or new wave reminds me of this, of this track right here. Just the music. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's a ballad. It's very R and B ish, uh, soulful. I could see this being on young Americans and fitting in much better. Um, but that's the thing, Eric, is that, yeah, I just sound very, uh, irritated. I'm not, yes. Um, talk, talk to me, father. Tell always, me what I did wrong. <laughs> he always does this. He always drops a song in. That's going to be the next thing. Right. I mean, that's you right. say, it doesn't, you say it doesn't fit here, which I understand that. But he, he typically, he mentions it himself and we've mentioned it is that there's usually a song that points towards what's coming next. And I think that's what this song does. It's like in uh, every, uh, it's- I think another song on this album does it better of what's coming next than this one. Cause I think this is like a get your lighters out album. You know, it's like, you know, you see that yeah. imagery of the audience swaying their hands back and forth. It's just it's Bowie doing a very 70s song and it works for me because I'm all right with those Elton John type sing-alongs. I, I have no problems. It doesn't necessarily fit. Uh, and I could see some of the criticism that was put on Bowie's feet on this one a bit, it being kind of a mess. Um, but this song is it's fine with me. I'm fine with it. This is my least favorite song on the album. I, uh, wow. I, uh, I, I find it, I find that, like I said, the music's fine with me, um, but I do find it to be a little sappy. I find it to be cheesy. Uh, sing along. Are you going to fucking use the word basic again? I'm not going to use the word basic. Uh, although I can think of some basic artists who would do a song like this, but um, yeah, I mean, listen, like even if you like look at the lyrics, there's some stuff that stands out that I think is pretty self-reflective. I would take a Foxy kind of stand with while well, tens of thousands found me in demand, but he doesn't get much deeper than that. And it seems like he set out to write like a thank you song to his fans and kind of couldn't. Um, no, but I think he did. I agree with you that he tried to write what he tried to do is that this is the cousin to rock and roll suicide, rock and roll suicide, which is give me your hands and is like a, you're not alone type anthem in my opinion. To the fans. I can see the relation. I feel like yeah. this is the other side of that. He's rock and roll suicide is saying, when I'm here for you, you're not alone. And this is the other side of that where he's saying, because you're here for me, I'm not alone. And for me, it works. 
I, 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 I did the, that sappy intent works for me. The uh, vocalizations work for me. The ridiculous organ, which sounds like it belongs in one of uh, Bob Dylan's reviews. Exactly. It definitely. I like the organ. Like I said, I like the music. The music definitely reminds me of Bob Dylan doing like, like Rolling Stone. Um, I just, yeah. I, and e- yes, the sappy chorus is fine, but e- when he actually goes to the verse to dig in a little deeper to that, it's just, I, I, I find it pretty, pretty hollow. Um, the song just, just doesn't do it for me. It doesn't do it. it doesn't do it. That, 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 that line the, the, where he sings, I'm in tears again. And then he goes, I'm in tears. And it's just a, organs going all over the place and the guitars wanking but, it works for me but but mark, mark, mark you said it's like a, lyric, a, sorry go on steve i was gonna say it's as a lyric person that i found the door that let me outline i think that's an all-timer for what he's talking about uh it, sure i don't know if it fits into what this overarching concept album is supposed to be but we've already agreed that the concept album for this album doesn't completely gel so why not fucking sit, stick a good song on here was he supposed to sit on it for another couple of years you know <laughs> at least now uh the, i found the door which lets me out is, is a good line i did actually mark that down i mean it's not all bad i just find this to be i find this to be a low point you know for me um uh, and mark what you're saying with like a sing-along with lighters flaring like that automatically bristles my skin and and gets me against the wall I, like don't tell me to sing no, along it, with it, you like that's that doesn't fit into my that's not my wheelhouse. You know, I totally yeah, get yeah, it. I funny. totally get it. We're, you know, the three of us are all very similar, but we have our quirks and our, our likes. And yeah, if someone tells uh, Eric to get a lighter out, he leaves the show. <laughs> I push to the front of the, I push to the front of the audience for those songs. Right. So, so I, I would actually put this instead of on young Americans, I would put it on like uh, Aladdin right. Sane. I think, uh, as you were saying, it's a direct correlation between rock and roll suicide. I think Aladdin Sane is almost like a sequel to Ziggy Stardust. And I think that this one could easily fit maybe on that record a little bit nicer. Um, but uh, it, it's fine where it's at. I'm o- I'm okay with it. I have zero problems. I mean, this is the introduction to the to the half of where it's more into the 1984 world than hunger city world. And, um, so there is going to be kind of like a sound difference. This song I think was intended for the 1984 stage mu- musical that, that doesn't make any envisioned. sense. Oh, it makes no sense, but I think <laughs> I, it, it is, be. but I think be, it is. Uh, oh. Yeah. Well, you know, not, you know, neither does fucking having a diet of peppers and milk, but he did it. That's true. So, you know, it's true for better or for worse, <laughs> for better <laughs> or for worse. Anyways. All right. Yeah. So we're, we're a podcast divided on this song, but it's a good song despite what Eric says. Yeah, it's highly it's highly <laughs> listenable. I find it super jarring on this album. Super jarring. But yeah, next. I understand. Let's yeah. go to right. We Are the Dead, which I feel like we're going to have the same version of this discussion on this, <laughs> this song. Trusting on the sons of our love 
So we are the dead. If I were to try to agree with Eric, which I sometimes try to do, <laughs> because much like at my job, every day I got to deal with people that don't know what they're talking about, but we got to work together to row in the right direction. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I could tell you that I do agree with you. If you dropped, I think Rebel Rebel and Rock and Roll with Me are excellent songs. But if you were to drop them from this album and go directly from the sweet thing reprise to We Are the Dead, it would probably flow better. Boom. Constant. And then maybe add Dodo into 1984. But yes, boom. I get that. (laughs) So, anyhow, since I gave you that much, thank you. You need to take it the rest of the way. And (laughs) what do you think of this song? I think it's great. I think um, you got a little bit more of that organ work. I think it sounds more like a Hammond organ. Uh, Mike Garson's playing uh, to set the groove of the song. Really, it really reminds me of our most downloaded episode, uh, "The Man That You Fear." That that uh, oh right yeah that 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 like, organ kind of gives me that like that that like it's almost like a walking bass line but done in organ to kind of to kind of get us yeah also that tone of it sounds like that that same piano. So this is pulled from 1984. It's specifically looking at the relationship between the main characters in the book um, and the fact that sex out of wedlock was a act of rebellion. And it's just kind of looking at that concept. Um, uh, and it, and it's, it could be compared to our fan favorite, our podcast favorite Sig- signet committee. In the in the sense that it is like a rant, he he it just kind of builds on itself, and he kind of builds in his storytelling as he tells it, as opposed to a normal song structure. Um, we are the dead is the is the chant because if you're going to rebel, you're basically condemning yourself to death. So that is that is the chant of the rebellion from 1984, and um, this is the song that and the thought police right. when the thought police are coming for you exactly. Um, there are some stuff that ties us to the diamond dogs, hunger city stuff where he's talking about, uh, we're breaking in the new boys, deceive your next of kin, um, for your dancing where the dogs decay, defecating ecstasy. It's all over the place. It's not a, it's not maybe a terribly, uh, distinctive song as far as, uh, the other high highs of this album, but I like it. I think it sets the tone for the rest of the album and, um, I really like the way he emotes while he's singing. And I think his way of taking the story and really just be making this, his adaptation of that story, I think is very unique and, and fun. Um, so uh, he really, yeah, he really on this track manages to portray a character that's in that book and you get the sense of paranoia and that you're like, you know, well, that's it. They're coming for me. Uh, he really portrays that well with the, the desperation that you hear in the uh, lyric delivery. 
Now I'm hoping someone will care, living on the breath of a hope to be shared, trusting on the sons of our loves, that someone will care, someone will care. Like they know they're doomed, but maybe their movement will, like the sons of their love, their, their movement, the, what, what, what happens after will, will save the world. Well, that's how I feel when, you know, Becky and I talk about having another kid and, and our, our pre-existing three and a half year old is that, well, you know, the world's going to hell. But maybe, maybe this next generation can fix things. That's right. Who knows? That's right. Lennox, Lula, Towns, Viv, they're all going to be the Diamond Dogs. Jack, of course, is going to be that. Is, is, is Halloween Jack. Halloween so. yeah. Jack. Jack's, Jack's the muscle. We've already agreed on this. So. Taylor made. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Garson's organ work is outrageous on this song. I love it. So I'm, I'm a big fan. This song has, it gives it, uh, the song breathes really well. I, I, that organ, you get to really hear it well. And as it progresses, it gets a little bit more manic and intense, but I feel the production lets you single out each instrument very nicely on this, this song. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything that you both have been saying that I, I like this song for its weirdness um, and the moods from the music arrangement. There's no doubt that the Fender Rhodes, uh, work by Mike Gar- There you go. Rhodes. Thank you. Is doing Thank the you. heavy lifting on this song. Um, there's, there's no doubt. It's very driven by that, uh, by that melody. I, the imagery, I'm, I'm not a lyric guy, but you know, after, you know, reading the lyrics, it's, he's really just tr- painting with words in, in this song. Um, uh, I enjoy it. Uh, it's uh, it doesn't frustrate me by its lack of structure from a uh, true traditional uh, song structure. I, I it's it's never boring for me. It is always entertaining. Um, and like you were saying, Eric, it does really continue that narrative of what we're hearing for the rest of the record. Right. Um, I enjoy it. it. It's so night and day. Um, you can really tell a sense of back half versus front half of this record. Um, right. They're two different animals, um, but I'm enjoying both. To do a quick, to do a quick call back to Steve's comment. This is climbing the Mega Man Two building. It's a long climb. It builds and builds and builds, and there isn't necessarily that satisfaction of a of a typical song structure. But we're going to get that for the next two songs in the same 1984 world. So this is just kind of building up to that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think we need to really say much more about this song, but it sounds like we all enjoy it. Um, yeah, it's definitely it's a it, it's a it takes its breath before the album right. climaxes. Uh, and um, yeah, for some reason, it's the only song off this album they never played live. I could see that. I mean, it's more of a transition song than it's song that you would put into a set list on its own. Um, uh, I, I think it needs to be, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's, it's strong enough to stand on its own without it having its neighbors near it. If you can understand what I'm saying, I think that 1984 is more than, uh, capable of standing on its own as maybe even big brother. Um, but, uh, as a, yeah, it's a transition song. Yeah. It needs those other two to be effective. Totally. Yeah. All right, well, let's transition right into 1984.
1984. I remember the first time I heard this song because I was listening to this album all the way through. And when this track came on, I thought that somehow my CD player got busted and all of a sudden the TV turned on and the opening theme song for the TV show Streets of San Francisco was playing because that's what this sounds like to me. And I mean that complimentary. It's definitely, this is the 1970s and we're going to run down the streets in our tight plaid pants. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I made the joke that this, that's that on the last episode that in station to station that stay sounded like shaft. No, no, this is, this is shaft. This is totally it's straight up. Shaft. Yeah. This is totally shaft or like, yeah. yeah, the opening or like the opening to bullet or something. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing, <laughs> it's an amazing set piece. For the, and you could imagine this being the opening to the the theatrical play if he ever saw that through fruition because it's just it's thematic it's it's pretty epic yeah and very seventies so seventies the very seventies it was actually yeah this was a single as well which doesn't surprise me considering the wah wah guitar you find on it uh, this was not David Bowie on that wah wah this was it was been probably outside his skill set it was a uh, Alan Parker. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a funk jam that could easily be like the theme of a cop show. There's just no doubt. I, in my mind, when I ever I listen to this song, I just, when he says 1984, I could just see the, the title card just flying in um, from center. Uh, 1984, starring Michael Douglas, Carl Malden. It's, um, it's Michael Douglas from Street yeah, San Francisco, so or or the uh, the uh, the Beastie oh, Boys sorry. from the Sabotage video tackling each other. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, when you guys were talking about rock and roll with me being a, a cue for young Americans, I think this one is like absolutely telegraphing. Hey guys, I'm really into this whole funk soul sound. It definitely is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the big echoing um, ooze. Um, it's really hard not to appreciate the fun that's happening in the song. Um, and of course, uh, I know that we'll talk about some of the cover versions, but uh, in the year 1984, um, friend of David Bowie, uh, Tina Turner recorded this in 1984 uh, off her album, Private Dancer. And, you know, to be honest, guys, I, I couldn't even finish her version of it. Really? I, I liked it. it I liked it. Wow, that's wild. <laughs> oh, wow. That is wild. I thought, I I, I can't Tell explain about it. it. I can't explain. You've, uh, you've got a live band and some kind of synthy cocktail that, you know, <laughs> I don't know who's live and who's not. And she's just belting it to the rafters. And uh, I don't know why. I just like, oh, yeah, this totally makes sense to me. Uh, no, it's not as good as And I like Tina Turner. I think Tina Turner is, uh, you know, she's a force to be reckoned with, but I just, it was wrong place, wrong time for her to be recording this. Uh, <laughs> Tina Turner has a great voice. She is a, you know, a, a, a great flair for the theatrical that goes beyond even being in Beyond Thunderdome. And I, it makes perfect sense that her and David Bowie, uh, have they ever outright collaborated together? I'm not sure. Tonight, yeah, on the album okay. tonight, we'll get yeah, to that yeah, at yeah. some point. Okay. That was also really. They definitely, they, they definitely, I could tell that they appreciate each other and, and were, you know. Oh, she creative, owes she owes uh, her revi- uh, revival yeah. to him. He got her on the label. He co-wrote some of the songs on Private Dancer, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, so, that, that all makes sense. And I love a good early '80s. Uh, 
uh, robot reimagining of a song. I just was not feeling her version of it. Yeah. <laughs> say the least. So yeah. Yeah. Back, back to, back to his version. I, the, the Eric. Yeah. Lyrically, this is, this is, I mean, for God's sakes, it's called 1984, which is what he was trying to make this album all about until, uh, uh, Orwell's widow, Sonia shot it down. Uh, the lyrically what's going on here. I mean, it's, it's, it's just an adaptation of, of the book. I mean, I'm not digging too deeply. Like this is, this is one of the, the thing, the problems with adaptations is it, you know, it doesn't give you a lot to chew on if you know the basic structure of the story. Um, I'm looking for a vehicle. I'm looking for a ride, uh, basically trying to get out of town. Um, but he's being chased by the thought police. And uh, just you're getting some just some flashes and images of of that story. I, I really don't have too much to say about the lyrics on this song because it's you know if you're familiar with 1984, that's what you get here. Um, yeah, they they originally recorded it, it. It's an older song. It it, it the Aladdin Sane uh, sessions is when they originally recorded it and somehow smashed it up with Dodo, which I don't understand why those two songs were put together. Can, yeah, I, I can, can I can I talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, let's talk about it now. Uh, Dodo is also a 1984 song, and it's kind of bridging the gap between the story and kind of talking a little bit more about brainwashing. But that's what Big Brother is all about. So they kind of found this song to be unnecessary. That's why they took it out. But how do those songs like fit together though? Like I've, I've listened to Dodo by itself, but I haven't listened to maybe. So the there's one that a, they there is a great live video of it that we'll link um, where they go from 1984 and it's barely a minute into the song and Bowie's wearing this huge space, like glittery spacesuit, And, and at one point these two people come up, the, the two backing vocal like singers come up, rip a spacesuit off. And he's got this like half corset with his nipples exposed <laughs> and he goes right into dodo and they the band goes crazy and it's just it's just equally funky Coolly decide to sell him down the line. That is 
Live version, the way they the way they put them together. Dodo on its own is uh, kind of weird, but when they put them together, it totally works. Um, with 1984, I like 1984 by itself better. Don't get me wrong, but I can see like something about Dodo and the way he, he, the back the backup vocals are what Dodo's all about because he's singing Dodo to Dodo to, like and they're and they're they're doing their thing over him and. Uh, it kind of makes sense when you see it. Because Dodo is very horns driven and 1984 yeah. is more of that guitar driven. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah. And they, yeah, do. they, they really, I want to cover Dodo after we talk about the rest of this album. The Why those two songs lyrically, I, I, I kind of get it, but musically it just seems like a peanut butter and the yeah, gum. nuts and gum. Yeah. yeah. Nuts and gum. <laughs> uh, actually, the mix of the two of them together, that song isn't just pleasant. It just makes no sense to me. Right. Um, it's just, I mean, lyrically, it's fine. It, it, it's just, it's part of the 1984 world. It's about brainwashing. Um, but it's just, it's basically giving a second hook to 1984. Because like the way 1984 is structured lyrically is it's just like really short verses. And then like that. That 1984 like thing that and then over and over again, and Dodo just kind of gets yeah the the content the, the, the lyrical content of 1984 is secondary. The delivery is what is primary. The 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 soulful 1984s is what you're supposed to be worrying about, and also the uh, oh. All that stuff. That's what yeah. you're, you're coming oh, yeah. to 1984 oh, yeah. for. What they're actually saying is, you know, almost irrelevant on that track. It's just the, the track barrels into the window and it runs through the room. And maybe if uh, you're lucky, it's going to grab you and take you with it. Right. But uh, I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, I Yes, it sounds very 1970s, but it was the 1970s. So I'm not going to knock it for sounding like the 1970s. Right? Yeah. I don't hate the song. I uh, I like the song. I I think that it fits fine for what it's trying to do and who David Bowie is. Really, I mean, he's always been very experimental in his sound, and he's a, uh, he's an artistic sponge in the sense of just picking up his influences and then regenerating them through his own filter. Um, so, uh, I think it's interesting take on the uh, subject matter of 1984 rather than making it more doom and gloom and oppressive, he's making it more of the time of the sound of the seventies. Um, and, uh, I think it's an interesting, um, choice. Well, if they're going to brainwash you, it's got to sound fun, right? Exactly. True. Yeah. yeah. All right. That takes us to the final proper song on the album, which is big brother. Should we powder our noses? Don't live for last year's capers. Give me steel, give me steel, give me pulses unreal. 
Lost Asylum With just a hint of mayhem Big Brother which is the climax climax of the album. And I think it speaks to some of the themes that David Bowie always goes back to very well of what happens when you think you have a savior or when you think you are a savior. Uh, I, I, I think it closes the album very, very well. It, it, it does not bring back, the hunger city side of things as much as Eric probably wants it to, but for the way the album is sequenced, I think it's perfectly placed to close the book on diamond dogs or get you into the, the weird nutso last track, which actually does close the book. Well, if, if, if hunger city, is kind of, if hunger city is kind of like a, uh, a, if the diamond dogs are straight out of clockwork orange, then, um, you know, this song is, you know, when his eyes get clamped open and he becomes, you know, reformed or whatever at the end. So, so it's, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a sad ending, if you will. Right. So for this song, for me, um, I uh, get reminiscent of the synth sax. I don't, I don't think that's actual genuine sax. I could be wrong. Um, maybe it's kind of clipped to where it sounds like it's almost uh Synthesized, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the Blade Runner score <laughs> um, at the beginning. Uh, the someone to you know dot 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 section is just an all timer. Oh yeah, uh, I, I love that uh, that delivery. And for whatever reason, um, this song really reminds me of uh, what like a like a Blur song. I don't know. I, I really get the sense that Damon Alburn or the folks or the the whole band from Blur really inspired by this song. Um, I hear a little bit of the universal um, mm. on this song. Just, Oh, I totally can. Hear I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, can you hear it a little bit? Yeah. I, I think that if you go back and listen to it, you, you'll probably hear that little prism of uh, yeah. of the blur. Um, blur, blur are definitely friends of the show if I've ever had any. So yeah, I and yeah. Uh, yeah. for this song always kind of stuck out for me like that Brit pop kind of sound. Um, I, I I think this is a great song. I, I love this totally. Song. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, it's a good one. The song has a it just has an epic feel to me. Um, I'm going to bring up video games again because I guess I'm just doing that tonight. The there's 
I don't know how to describe them. It sounds like a it sounds like a manipulated sample of like a church choir, and yeah. the way the the, the, the da, 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 da. it sounds like the dungeons in Zelda, and it's uh, that <laughs> always sticks with. Me. I, I I don't know if you guys like I'll Eric should drop in a clip here because like, once you hear it, you can't unhear it. It's just an otherworldly. It has an otherworldly vibe. This song sounds like it's coming through a portal from uh, one of the other realities in the Dark Tower. It's very, very strange piece of music. Very strange and beautiful piece of music. I guess Alan Parker's on this song as well. He makes a case for giving in to the brainwashing in that, you know, the, the diamond dogs, the, the, the ne'er-do-wells of society... Um, the the problems that we have can go away if we all become one, um, you know. And uh, obviously, uh, that's ridiculous. We need our flaws as a society, but you can you can you know you can make uh, analogies to other things that have happened politically, uh, especially during authoritarian leaders, where you know trying to get people to fall in line. Um, uh, my favorite little bit of lyrics is don't talk of dust and roses or should we powder our noses? Don't live for last year's capers. Give me steel. Give me steel. Give me pulsars unreal. And it's just kind of like, you know, do we, do we look at our past freedoms or do we find our distractions kind of thing? And then the distraction is the brainwashing. Um, yeah. And the, the, the chorus is huge. Uh, I love this song. It's, it's totally a driving finish. Yeah. It's a very cinematic finish. I could imagine him in the middle of the stage singing it while bit players from whatever play we just watched are dancing around him. Uh, that ice. I get a little more of that on the last track, but yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's true. The, the icy opening of it with the robotic, uh, the chance that I was talking about, I think is a kind of a signaling where they're going to go with low in a few years. It, it definitely the, the very start of that song, the introduction is uh, remote and cold and electronic. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it, and I, I know that a lot of this album was just based off whole, whole cloth, 1984, but I truly feel that this song does talk about some of the problems of trying to lay all your, your decisions or salvation with one person or a savior and that will further be explored i think as he becomes the thin white duke later yeah oh yeah so, oh yeah the yeah. european fascism, fascism element being yeah. hinted at here yeah yeah uh, totally totally does it's almost like the guy much much like with ziggy stardust where if that wasn't a self-fulfilling prophecy what is this is almost he's pointing out the problems with such a thing but then he goes and embraces them in a few years right can't beat him join him yeah So that gets All right. to the end of the album, which is the very creative chant of the ever circling skeletal family. <laughs> Might win the award for best song title. <laughs> 
All right. That was, All right. Yeah, that was Mark. the chant of the ever-circling skeletal family. Um, this song is just an outro to Big Brother that got promoted to a separate track. Um, they uh, easily could have been just melded into one. Um, I can understand why there is a little bit of a separation. I don't really consider this a sweet, like we did with Sweet Thing Candidate and Sweet Thing Reprise, but uh, uh, like I mentioned, I can really see the dancers on stage giving it their best for the big finish for the musical that never was. Um, this song, I mean, it's it's fine for being an outro. Um, it's not something that I'll ever, like, uh, you know, try to navigate towards when I want to listen to some David Bowie. And if it shows up on shuffle, I'll be like, that's weird. Cause it should be just automatically connected to big brother. Um, it's one of those songs that you would think that they would just be one song. Uh, if you're just putting this record on and not paying attention to where the record skips to the next track, you would think it was just the same song as big brother and the song. And then the album's over. And then it has that little skipping uh, effect with bruh, 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 bruh. Yeah, definitely getting back to my comment I made about how the start of Big Brother reminds me of this, the, the iciness of low. Well, this ridiculous instrumental song is kind of signaling to some of the experimentation they'll do on Lodger, if you will. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, like, listen, people just got brainwashed in Big Brother. And now they're, their senses, their brain, I mean, it's like, you know, they're short circuiting circuiting. And that's, that's what we're hearing in this song. And that's what they leave us with. Uh, but yeah, I don't have much to say other than that. I mean, it's effective for that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, in yeah, the whole album. I, I, it really should just, it should yeah. have just been the end of big brother. Maybe did they, maybe they wanted to release big brother as a single. I don't know. Uh, I don't think never. They nope. They never did. But I guess, I so. yeah, I mean, it's even queen did this. Like it's not uncommon for these seventies, like concept, even though this wasn't a really well executed concept album, it's like to break up a song into bits, even though when you like, when you listen to it, it is one long song. Resident of the same thing with hesitation marks. Listen to how nine inch nails ends the song while I'm still here with the song black noise. So, Let's let's rate this album. I will start because I'm the one that uh, is the the apolo- not apologist to the uh, I'm the biggest fan of this album probably out of the, out of the three of us, and I will give it despite all its it's it's sloppy and at times some things don't fit like we think they should. They might find a home better on another album, but like I said, why would you wait to release a good song when you have a good song now? Uh, I'll give it 3.75 bolts out of five. 3.7. Wow. Okay. Um, for myself, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just kind of going on whole numbers here and, um, you know, I would rate it a four out of five. You know, I gave my last, uh, station to station, a perfect score of five out of five. I don't think it's as good as station to station. Um, I think that uh, what I talked about with Rebel Rebel, and then you've got some skits with Future Legend and Chant of the Ever Circling uh, Skeletal Family, which I, I just I don't care about. Um, it's close to being a perfect record. It's a little bit disjointed. I would have loved to see what Mick Ronson could have done or uh, someone with a little more lead guitar chops um, on some of the uh, 
guitar work for diamond dogs and um it, and it could be one of those situations where it could have been a perfect score you know, i just i'm so over rebel rebel i don't know what it is about that song but it's a four out of five for me it's funny you mentioned that about um the guitar work the the sloppiness and the sometimes the the choppiness of the guitar work i actually appreciate it more knowing that david bowie's primary the role is not the guitar player and so much like our podcast i admire the the balls and the scrappiness of him trying to be the guitar player on this yeah. album yeah yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, his guitar playing does not detract at all for me on this album i do rate this album a three out of five um it has some real high highs actually the the future legend the outro song those actually are all bonuses for me those kind of play into what could have been a great concept album um uh, rock and roll with me get that fucking thing out of this this fucking album it has no place here um really drags it down um i will not sanction sanction your buffoonery so that's a great get song. it out of here i'm not saying it's not a good song get it out of here it's terrible um, on this, on this album is so jarring. Uh, but I will say like, if they just, if he would have just reworked some of his 1984 lyrics to fit the imagery of his hunger city diamond dog lyrics, I, you could even make a case for rebel rebel. It would, it would be more of a cohesive, enjoyable experience. Um, but it, it there's too many jarring moments and, uh, rock and roll with me. I, but the high high is I can't go lower than a three, uh, three is absolutely correct. Yeah, so I think it's fair. We all agree it's above above average. Oh, yeah. Uh, I actually, you know, I, I think it's a great album, but I, I do that knowing it's a very flawed record. And don't forget so, about Lennox's review. Moving forward. My least favorite songs on this album are Rock and Roll With Me, We Are the Dead, and Future Legend. My favorite songs on this album are Rebel Rebel, Diamond Dogs, and Big Brother. So what would you rank this album? I'd rank this album a three. Out of five volts? Mm-hmm. Three out of five? Did you do three out of five? Actually, I did. <gasps> Why would you give it a three? I give it a three because it's definitely not one of his best albums, but it's better than his albums he made in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Yeah, it's way better than those ones, but... Okay, well, question. The world's about to end. Are you going to go in for brainwashing or are you going to become a diamond dog? Maybe, like, if they're not really doing that many bad things, I guess diamond dog. So, moving forward, let's uh, cover a few of the the tracks that were left over that we didn't really go into. All right, so Eric, what, what, uh, out of the leftovers from this era, what, what, what else, what else didn't we talk about? Anything like growing up? Did you want to talk about growing up? Right, there was that. Uh, there were, they also did uh, "Holy Holy" was a a holdover from. It was like a B. It was like it was like a deleted song from Ziggy Stardust that showed up on a B side of uh, shit. One of the songs on here, uh, maybe "Rebel Rebel." Um, "Holy Holy" is, you know, definitely a Ziggy I mean, era I song. Th- yeah, I think um, uh, the version of the uh, Ziggy Stardust like 30th anniversary. It's on the second disc of that. Exactly. So yeah, we can save it for more of that yeah. talk. For we'll them. talk about it then. That's a great. That's a great release. That 30th uh, with the book. Yeah, yeah that's right. That was- 
Uh, yeah, growing up, Springsteen song. I think Steve is the one to take this one away. Yeah, that's actually that's a good cover. That's not one of my favorite Springsteen songs, but it's not a bad song at all. I just uh, when I want to listen to Bruce Springsteen, I typically want a very large sound, and the bigger the better. Growing up is definitely a more subdued, stripped down track. Is that on Greetings from Asbury Park? Yeah, no. it is. And uh, the his his version of it uh, is very faithful to the original, actually. It is. Uh, if you were to not know it was David Bowie, you might think it's the original song. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a pretty faithful cover. It's a good song. Roddy Wood's uh, playing guitar on that record, or on that track from... Uh, on that, yeah. the cover of it? Yeah. That's a, that's a good pairing right there. And it, it's, you know... Uh, season four is going to be our Bruce Springsteen uh, season, whether these guys know it or not. <laughs> and um, uh, it's just, you know, it, the, the, the lyrical content of it is is basically just, you know, I wish I would have known the things I know now growing up. It's not nothing much deeper to it, but I, 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 I posted a few vo- photos on the socials this weekend of uh, the few times that it was documented that the boss and David met. And then uh, whenever those two, idols of mine were in the same proximity. It makes me happy. Uh, I like the idea of him covering Springsteen more than this version of it. Not that it's bad. It's just not my, that's not even my top 50 Springsteen songs. Well, there yeah, are I such, there are such different songwriters. Um, like very, yet yeah, very, true. uh, I Bowie's like, you know, at some point a, a, a critic could say, you know, from time to time style over substance. And, uh, Springsteen is, Meat and potatoes. Um, absolutely. Uh, and the, you know, this song is definitely like the, the guitar, like you get the, the chord progression down, 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 down kind of like thing over and over. And then he's telling his story. Um, it definitely sounds like early Springsteen, but yeah, he does a good job. Um, I do like the connection that the pushing ahead. The Dame website says is that they had a lot in common they were both self uh, mythologists where they were kind of building their building their like their myths as performers. And they both have obviously, you know, epic, epic stories, true and false, you know, legends. Oh yeah. If you guys get the time to watch that Netflix uh, uh, recording of the Springsteen on Broadway, he definitely is a guy that knows he has a story. He started telling, and he had to start living that story. I mean, the guy, I, I, I live and die by the boss, but he's written how many songs about uh, the blue collar lifestyle and he's never worked a nine to five job in his life. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's, it's pretty good. It's a good cover. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about it again briefly when we talk about pinups, right. whenever that is. Yeah. So, uh, and then he uh, showed up, on a couple other people's tracks during this era. One of which I liked way more than I thought I would. Let's start with the the ridiculous to know him is to love him by steel. Eye span ah. and Mark uh, who, who's steel. Eye span exactly. They're a side project of like Jethro Tull or something. Yes. I mean, they're like a folk rock. I mean, like they were, uh, it was when produced I by the guy song. from Jethro Tull, one of the guys from Jethro Tull. I, I don't know a whole lot of backstory of this band, um, but uh, I was not uh, was not blown away by th- his um, 
appearance was do you doing saxophone or something yep, on this it. record yep. exactly. that's all he does on it yeah. it's it's like a weird 50s doo-wop gospel song yes. with by a bunch of folk people yeah and i i didn't mind it i enjoyed listening to it twice but uh yeah it's, it's an odd curiosity uh it, it, it's kind of like if that band Okerville River existed back in the seventies and David Bowie helped them out. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I was more of a fan of the other song he showed up while well, he, he, he wrote uh, Dana Gillespie's cover of Andy Warhol composed. by That was pretty cool. Composed by David Bowie. I, that was some like lush, almost like at some point sounded shoegazy. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. It was like a vocal song. Um, definitely sounded like, probably connection to Andy Warhol definitely sounded like some, some, uh, holdovers from his, uh, pop art factory phase, but, uh, I thought it was a cool song. Andy walking, Andy tired, Andy takes a little snooze. Time up when he's fast asleep, send him on a pleasant cruise. When he wakes up on the sea, he's sure to think of me and you. You think about paint and you'll think about blue. What a jolly boring thing to do. Definitely, he the another song from this era that the I listened to was "Weren't Born a Man." Did I did. That, that was one? a good one. By yeah, it, it sounds kind of um, I, I don't know, uh, like Aretha Franklin by way of uh, Janis Joplin. I don't know. Yeah, there was but, this band um, that came out uh it was featured on the death proof soundtrack it's a band called smith um it kind of reminded me of that uh production um but yeah dana glassby it should be available on most of the streams if you are a subscriber to that check it out i i think it's worth yeah um your time yeah and then the last one was the mick ronson yeah, he uh, solo two songs. yeah. He wrote two songs yeah, hero, in there, right? hero 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 of the show mick ronson who also I wanted to mention, uh, I didn't get a chance to watch it yet. That new Dave or that new Bob Dylan documentary that's out on Netflix that Martin Scorsese put together. The, uh, what's it called, Eric? The Rolling, the Rolling, Thunder, Rolling Thunder, Thunder Review. And that's from this era. And Mick Ronson's in that actually. Uh, he's part of the, he's part of the review. And, uh, he also, yeah, Slaughter and 10th Avenue uh, came out around this time. I have not watched Rolling Thunder Review yet. I did have the bootleg series when that came out. Um, and if you even have a passing interest in Bob Dylan or just want to hear a folk artist who just decided to like fuck up his music and turn it into like some crazy gypsy noodlings, uh, it's totally, um, I find it fascinating. Um, so I'm looking forward to watching that documentary. Um, and I, and I actually wanted to, yeah, when I saw Bob Dylan, he definitely, he does like weird ragtime versions of his songs now, yes, I yes. think when, you go see him live. And even with David Bowie back in this era, he started, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. He started doing rearrangements of his songs that were a little more jazzy, a little bit more uh, funky right. than uh, they originally 
were intended to be always a little more sped up. And I, I thought about that a little bit when I, I was thinking about how Bob always says that. Right. But back to this Mick Ronson stuff. Um, I did not get a chance to dive into it. Like I wanted to, uh, the title track is great, but that's all I, I listened to the two yeah. songs that Bowie co-wrote, which is growing up and I'm fine. Pleasure man. And then the other one was, uh, Oh no, growing up and I'm fine. And pleasure man are the two songs. They definitely sound like Bowie songs. Um, they sound like the last hurrah of the glam rock phase. I think Ronson's singing on them, um, but they definitely sound like Bowie had his hand in the composition of those songs. Um, and if there are any indication of the rest of the album, I think it's totally worth a listen. If you like glam rock, sounds like it's a kind of a lesser spoken of uh, gem of that era. Yeah, no, we definitely, I think we, we owe it to uh, ourselves and our, our subject matter to do a Mick Ronson episode. One of these Absolutely. Days. So we'll talk and about give, it more. And give that album more, more the respect it's due. 100%. Um, and then uh, the live albums that were released right, around this time. Right. There was two. Yeah. So I, I kind of wanted, I wanted to talk about those and cr- the cracked actor documentary all at once. Yeah. Cause they all kind of see each other. Let's just get the bad out of the way. Uh, David live, put it in the dumpster, light it on fire. Yeah. Yeah, even David Bowie was not a fan. He looked at the album cover and he was like, he looked like a ghost wearing a really large suit. So Yeah, I remember seeing that one in the used section of Dimple quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the production is muddy. The 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 there's there's nothing the instruments do not stand out from each other at all. It just sounds bad. It sounds limp. I did not like there it. There is at all. a 2016 remastered version of that where they try to at least make it sound more pleasing to the ears it does not change the fact that you know he sounds bored out of his gourd the entire the entire time and they're not really doing anything unique with the instrumentation um yeah it's it's a it's a low point in Bowie's discography oh yeah but but instead of listening to that you can just go to the same tour right and listen to that cracked actor live album which i think is great yeah, much better so did we all listen to the cracked actor live album? I listened to half of it because the David live one kind of bummed me out. And uh, when I was oh, looking no. at research on that David live, David Bowie didn't tell his uh, touring musicians that they were going to be recording a live album professionally. Oh. And uh, he was only going to pay him like pretty much scale. And they were like, we're not going on stage unless you pay us $5,000 each or something like that. And so like they confronted Bowie and said, no, man, you're not going to do us like this. So it was kind of an interesting little story, but I did not uh, watch the documentary. I just ran out of time before uh, we went to the recording booth and uh, I listened to half of Cracked, uh, the, uh, Cracked Actor Live in 74. I feel like the yeah, well, documentary Actor helped Live. me appreciate the live album a little bit, uh, maybe more than I, because I, I listened to it when it first dropped and I liked it fine, and I think I liked it more now after I watched the documentary. Well, I, I feel that Cracked Actor, the live album, is great. Uh, the, the the crew on it is, yeah, David Bowie, Earl Slick, Carlos Alomar, Mike Garson, uh, David Sanborn, Richard Grondo on uh, saxophones and flutes, Doug Rausch, and Greg Erico on bass and drums. And then you've got uh, Gui Androsio, War and Peace, Ava Sherry, Robin Clark, Anthony Hinton, Diane Solmer, and Luther Vandross on the backing ah. vocals. I love all I love all the uh 
the, the backup singing that is on that live album. Yeah, it's yeah. There definitely it's in, he's headed right to. I mean, Luther Vandross, right. is the biggest indicator, headed right towards Young Americans. Plastic Soul, on, on some of those Plastic rings. Soul time. Yeah, um, the documentary is interesting. You can find it on the BBC archives, free on on the online. Um, it is Eric. I really I appreciate you sending me that link multiple oh, yeah. times when I finally got when I finally sat down to watch that. I really liked yeah. it, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's one hour long. It doesn't take too much time. It's um, David Bowie produced and directed it for BBC. You could tell he wanted to show people where he was at that point in his life. The problem was he wasn't terribly coherent at that point in his life. Um, he is deep into his, clearly his cocaine addiction. You see him drinking jugs of milk, going on these rants about how he feels like a fly stuck in his milk. He's a foreigner in a foreign land. Um, you see his nostrils sniffing and flaring like a fish gills when if it's flopped out of its fish tank. Uh, he looks like a ghost. Um, it's, it's in, in some sense, it's very depressing. He's in uh, California driving around the desert. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of what he, the, he probably dove into that reservoir when he made Manny fell to earth, right? That outsider in America. Exactly. Stuff. Again, him, him and his self-fulfilling prophecies where I think he comes up with these ideas and he would start digging into them and living them out. Um, but he seems very sad in it. It's, uh, it just made me think about with him, you know, what, what makes a guy who has it all like that, whose upbringing wasn't totally terrible right? to spiral that out of control and be that sad. Yeah. He seems really sad and lonely. And the fact is, is he put it together but, himself too. So it's not like, it's not like papar- paparazzi footage of like somebody losing it. It's like, he's trying to put his best face forward and this is kind of the best he could do. There are moments of coherency where he's talking about what he wants to give fans and, and people listen to his music that I think is really beautiful. Like, like Steve, you texted me about how, like if he inspires anybody to find characters within themselves that they can be, then he feels like he's doing the right work. Like I thought that was really, yeah, really cool. that's, that's what he says. He says, he says, you know, I wear a lot of masks. I do a lot of characters. If I can inspire other people to do the same thing, I feel like I've done my job. And they do a great job of showing the fans of the time and the personnel that work with him and his road crew of how they appreciate him. Uh, they, they do a lot of uh, discussions with fans and uh, personnel that I think uh, flesh the whole thing out. It's also great because they abandon a lot of that. Uh, the set pieces they use for that tour, they were really expensive. There was catwalks. There was a giant hand, <clears throat> excuse me, a giant hand with like flashing lights and uh, he would sing to some skull. Oh yeah. It was so dramatic. All- like, uh, yeah, he would, he would do a whole yeah. Hamlet thing where he'd be singing to a skull there. He was sitting in a chair and they put uh, this uh, projector behind him and made it look like he was flying while you sang uh, um, space oddity. There's a cherry, the, the cherry picker for space oddity is something he did for years, but oh, yeah. yeah, they did. They did a whole bunch of this stuff and then they just abandoned it midway through stripped it down and, and started going towards the, uh, the Philly soul style of, which things. is mostly where they got but, the, uh, soundtrack, the, uh, the, the yeah, it's great. It's a, it's a great, uh, look into the, the very start of the, the diamond dogs, big mass production stage right. show. Cause that, at some, and, and like I said, it's, it's very interesting. Cause at some points he's, he's very coherent and saying really thoughtful things. And then like, at some point he, it doesn't make any sense. And like, you, 
like completely losing his train of thought in interviews and, and, uh, it's obviously a hard time for him. So, uh, recommended to watch. I, I gotta say that kind of a bummer. Yeah. On that live, album, on that live album and that live video, the version of cracked actor is a, an all timer. And, um, a, a re a rearranging of a track that I love is the version of moon age daydream oh, on yeah. that uh, cracked yeah. actor. That's a good one because they, 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 they really go hard with the horns and uh, it takes a song that we're all very familiar with and makes it a whole new beast yeah. with a bunch of horns. Oh yeah. Um, as always, Michael Komodos gave us a great little thing online uh, about his thoughts on the album, but he, he was pretty much with us a lot. Diamond Dogs, the song was his highlight. Um, talking about how it is kind of a mess, um, but it feels super relevant now that we're actually descending into a dystopia. Ha <laughs> ha! Fun for everyone. So, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Way too much of this stuff seems uh, a little too real. All right, what's next? All right, Mark, you got the list up. I do. All right, here we go. So as always, if it's a duplicate, then we'll count it as a 20 and roll the D8. 20. Putting on the black tie. So number 20, that is black tie white noise. <laughs> we are, we did we, had we our, deserve it. Oh, we had it, we had our fun. <laughs> oh. oh. So here we go. We are flash forwarding. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not that the albums are bad. It's that you got to listen to them for two weeks straight. It's true. Well, we just try to mine for gold is what we're doing. And some of these records, I mean, this is pretty much still the uh, creative um, valley of David Bowie. And before he kind of has a resurgence with his, following record to black tie white noise, but we're going to give it our best on our next episode where we're going to be covering black yeah. tie white noise. And it's, it, it's, it's a like wedding a guys. It's a wedding. Let's all just, this dress and just dress to the nines and pretend like we're going to David Bowie's. There wedding. you go. Uh, a few things that make me want to hear the words tin machine. I think black t- tie white noise. Is <laughs> and, uh, so, I guess I could talk about, I could talk about Star Trek six and then there you next go. Episode, so that's so silver linings. Like I said, um, all right. So join us next time when we talk about black tie, white noise, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and, um, we will link, uh, to our Patreon account. If you'd like to be a Patreon uh, patron to our, uh, little scrappy operation that we're running here. Um, we always appreciate it. It'll never be something that we're going to ask you to pay for content, but we always appreciate you throwing a little something into the guitar cases. We're doing our thing on the, in the subway station. Yes, that's right. You'll never, it'll always be free, but if you want to give us money, no one's going to stop you. Uh, Thanks again, everyone. Uh, Send us your feedback, send us your thoughts on uh, diamond dogs. And of course, send us your, uh, your thoughts on black tie, white noise. You will probably be featured on our next episode. Uh, But until then, this has been Mark. Oh, this is Eric. Jesus Christ. Now you've gone from opening beer cans to crushing them on the (laughs) microphone. This is Steven. He's very upset with Eric again. And we hope we brought you closer to pod.